Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 63, Joseph Merrick, the Elephant Man. Today we have a show for you that I've been intending to do for years, but the stars have finally aligned and so here we go. Now, listeners to the podcast and all of those who are interested in the Whitechapel murders that occurred between the years 1888 and 1891 are no doubt well aware that an equally mysterious and compelling drama was taking place just blocks away from Buck's Row in the form of a gentleman who, suffering from what Francis Carr Gom called a singular and exceptional misfortune, had taken up residency in Bedstead Square in the east wing of the London Hospital. Outside of Queen Victoria herself, over the last 125 years since his death, Joseph Merrick has possibly become the most famous person in Victorian London history. But, alongside Jack the Ripper, his real story is shrouded in many myths and misconceptions. Today we hope to set the record straight by speaking to our three guests, each of whom bring their own special expertise to this discussion about the life and times and legacy of the Elephant Man. Jeanette Sitton is the founder and chairperson of the Friends of Joseph Carey Merrick, which has for the last 20 years been a charitable foundation raising money for medical research into Proteus Syndrome, and along with the website josephcareymerrick.com, is dedicated to keeping his story alive. As part of this charitable endeavor, she, along with May Strohshane, are the authors of Measured by the Soul, a biography of Merrick, which I believe is one of the two best books about the Elephant Man. Neil Bell is a historian of Victorian times who is, like Merrick, a native son of Leicester, where he still resides to this day, and is the author of the recently published and highly praised book Capturing Jack the Ripper in the Boots of a Bobby in Victorian London, and has written numerous magazine articles, and along with Adam Wood, is responsible for the upcoming republishing of Howard Vincent's Police Code 1889, the famous guide for the Metropolitan Police. Philip Hutchison's hat rack is quite large. He is an author, playwright, actor, historian, tour guide, and the senior custodian of Guilford Castle Keep. He's the author of the play Mr. Merrick, the Elephant Man, which utilized Jeanette Sitton and May Strohshane's book in its creation and plays the role of Frederick Treves in the Lucky Dog Theater production opposite Tony Carpenter as the Elephant Man. It is currently touring the UK along with his critically acclaimed play Hats Off to Laurel and Hardy and the one-man show Jack the Ripper Facts No Fiction. I am very pleased to have all of you three here with me today. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hello, John. Now, I'll start with Jeanette. Speaking of myself... As a child growing up in the United States, any kid interested in circuses, sideshows, things like that, such as I was, could walk into the school library and read books on the circus and sideshows, and they would be featuring stories about P.T. Barnum, Tom Thumb, Chang and Ang, Jojo the Dogface Boy, and of course the Elephant Man. So exposure to the existence of Joseph Merrick came pretty early to me as a child. And it was probably also the first time I read anything about Victorian England. Dickens would probably come a little later. When Merrick's story is told, it's always told as an inspiration story. It's not what your appearance may be on the outside, but who you are on the inside that matters and can make a difference. And so I wonder how you first became interested in Merrick's story 
and how his life became so important to yours that you've spent the last quarter century researching, compiling, and publicizing his life story? Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, big as you question. say, it's, it's been a long time. It's been a long time. And um, what happened, like so many people, I one day uh, bought the movie, sat down and watched The Elephant Man. And um, to my surprise, it was shot in black and white, which made it even more dramatic and wonderful. Um, and uh, it just took me over emotionally. I watched a piece, several pieces had me uh, in tears. I mean, it's a beautiful piece. And um, from that moment on, I was hooked. I really was. I thought, who is this amazing guy? Did he really exist? Is it just a film? Um, And I need to find out more. And I spoke to a very good friend of mine called George who who had a very bad um, uh, disability of his own and was, was had a disfigurement of the spine. He and I one day sat down and watched it together and um, I sort of turned to him to, to ask him some questions only to see that he was crying. And I knew from that moment on he had directly touched and empathised to such a degree that it had moved him to tears. He knew what he was going through. So not long after that, probably three years or so, my friend died. Part of me died too because I lost my father when I was nine years old and he became a mentor, a friend, a brother, a father, all rolled into one. So when he died, part of me died too. Um, And as a tribute to both my friend and to Joseph Merrick, I began the Joseph Kerry Merrick Tribute website. And that's how it got started. And this was back in 1990, correct? Actually, it was a bit before that. I think it may have been about 89. I'm not sure. I mean, and we're talking Internet websites, you know, around that. I mean, it's just really amazing that it's been around for that long of a time. And and then uh, from the um, Merrick Tribute website came the Friends of Joseph Carey Merrick Society. How did that come about? Well, it became um, uh, common sense to me at an early stage that Okay, I've got a website that talks all about Joseph Merrick's life and puts the record straight because in the film there are quite a few elements of artistic license. I wanted to put the record straight. And I thought, well, okay, I've done that. Now, what do I do next? I know I want to get Joseph's true life story out there to other people. So my plan from the very beginning was to have a group of friends around me who shared this passion, this interest, and would go out and talk to other people about Joseph Merrick's, Joseph Merrick's very, very um, uh, inspirational and courageous life story. Um, And that's basically how the Friends group began. I I needed people on the ground that would um, talk to other people about the story. And then from the Friends website came the book Measured by the Soul, which 
uh, the, all of our guests have read it. So, um, and I have, and the level of research and the supplemental articles and appendices make it the type of book that when I'm reading it, I, I'm actually thinking to myself, wow, what a good idea this book was. It's, so it's a rare book where you can sit there and read it and at the same time be thinking, whoever came up with the idea of this book was brilliant. How, so whose idea was it? And, and how did it come about? Uh, well, it was a joint idea. <laughs> and it was Maestro Shane's idea and mine. And we decided to uh, put this book together. Unlike another book, which I will not mention the title of, this one has uh, very new information, new research, uh, and it's an ongoing thing. Um, uh, another book, the one that I was uh, <laughs> talking about, is released very, very regularly with, with new editions and, uh, and with very, well, almost nothing of change, if any, any change at all inside the book. Ours isn't like that. Ours is evolving as we find out more information we bring out a new book, and that's exactly what's happening now. We've done a lot of research recently, and you'll be very happy to know that some at some point next year, there's going to be a second edition. Oh, wonderful. And the, uh, the Kindle version will be updated as well? It certainly will, yeah. So I, I guess we could get into some of Joseph's life story. A lot of what we knew about Merrick and that popular representations of him have come about through the Treves' reminiscences. So maybe we should touch on a little bit before we get too deep into Joseph's biography, uh, talk a little bit about Frederick Treves, who he was, uh, what he describes as Joseph Merrick's life in um, his reminiscences. Who would like to tackle that one? Philip, maybe? I could cover some stuff about Trees. I'm sure Jeanette will correct me if I get uh, anything wrong. But, um, yeah, okay. Trees was actually born in uh, February 1853. He came from Dorchester, so he's from the heart of, uh, of Thomas Hardy country. He started his medical studies in London, but uh, through, from his childhood, he'd been a, a fairly sporty character. He followed his brother into medicine. He went to uh, William Barnes School in Dorchester, which he really enjoyed, finished off his education at, at Merchant Taylors in London. Uh, he became a uh, surgeon at the London Hospital in 1879. He wrote his first book in 1882. He became head surgeon at the London Hospital very shortly before he met Merrick for the first time in 1884. Uh, obviously, the famous meeting with Joseph Merrick, uh, he'd, uh, Dr. Reginald Tuckett had been to see Merrick over the street at 123 Whitechapel Road from the London Hospital. He reported back to Treves. Treves himself went to see Merrick uh, on, uh, in November 1884. And shortly after that, on the 2nd of December that year, he presented Merrick to the Pathological Society. Uh, there, from there on, obviously, uh, that's, that's where the story uh, changes a little bit. But uh, Treves himself was known to be a, an energetic, uh, sarcastic man, quite witty, but he, he wasn't a sentimental character. Uh, so, although he can actually be quite... Um, he could be quite... <laughs> By, um, biting, really, to be honest, with some of his writings. Um, he wasn't given, you know, to unnecessary tears or things like that, but he, he was pretty strong-willed, had his own opinions, and very often they were coloured by his own view. Uh, he, he would very often write things, which I assume he, he knew himself were, were actually untrue, but he was going with such his own personal bias, and that was the, the primary source material for so many years that, that people had gone to believe what he said. 
after Merrick's death is when Treves like really became famous. Am I right? <laughs> Uh, that's right. Yes, uh, I mean he was he was the head surgeon anyway, so he was a man of you know, quite some import anyway. But um, he was uh, out in the Boer War in South Africa in, in 1899. Uh, the thing that really made his name was when he um, he removed the appendix of Edward the Seventh two days before the coronation in 1901. Um, I think actually uh, Edward had actually said, you know, this, this coronation is going to go ahead. And uh, Tree said, if this goes ahead, you will die. And so he, he had to have the uh, apodectomy or, or appendix, whatever the word is. But anyway, um, he, he got a baronetcy from that. He became knighted. So he became Sir Frederick Treves after, after that event in 1901. And right. that's what really made his name. Right. And, he, and, and then he, he almost became like a, a surgeon to the stars is what we would kind of refer to it today. Because he, uh, Henry Irving was one of his patients, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and um, so his stature just rose and rose and rose. So after he kind of retired from the medical practice, he had enough money to travel the world. And he always had these, like, uh, literary bent. Um, oh, yeah. So he would, he really wanted to focus on his writings, from what I, I can understand, and produce a series of uh, travel books. Uh, yes, he was a... It was a dramatic and, and poetic character, and consequently he went travelling you know, through lots of parts of the world the majority of people had never seen, and to this day a lot of people don't see. Uh, his, his books are, are very full of his own nature. They're, they're quite poetic, they're very dramatic, somewhat overstated, but they make a ripping good read, no pun intended. <laughs> and he produced a, like a half a dozen, at least, of, of these uh, travel books um, in, his, in the later part of his life. And then apparently someone had came to him and asked that he set down his reminiscences as a surgeon. And so yes. he, but he, he was afraid that if he talked about the, the um, Edward VII operation and things like that, for instance, he would be breaching some kind of confidentiality with some of his patients. So rather than talk about some of his, of those cases that he, that he was involved in, he, he wanted he produced the book that included the Elephant Man reminiscences, which is a book about some of his more peculiar and odd uh, cases that he, that he was a surgeon for. And yeah. then we get the Elephant Man. Yeah. yeah, indeed. Some of a more cynical bent might say that he started writing about people who wouldn't be able to actually sue him for anything. Right, <laughs> right. yes. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure how, how well of a bestseller his reminiscences were, but by far it was the most popular book that he had ever written. And, it, and I'm not sure if it was actually published prior to his death or was it published after his death because it was, it was right around the same time to where he yeah, passed, it, correctly? It got, it got published by Castle in 1922. Trees himself died on uh, December the 7th, 1923. Okay. Um, so he wasn't able to enjoy too much of the fame that the Elephant Man case would have garnered him. But nevertheless, after Treves wrote his, his piece on Joseph Merrick, who he referred to as John in the, the book, other people who knew Merrick at the time would start including in their reminiscences, in their memoirs, uh, little sections on the Elephant Man. But largely based just to jog their memories on what Treves had written. So it, it multiplied myths throughout the years. Is that right? 
I'd, yeah. You, yeah, you could say someone that not everyone did that. You get like accounts by Tom Norman, and it's a different matter. But but yeah, generally it did. And uh, I'm sure we're, we're largely very familiar with authors who just plagiarise other authors' works and perpetuate myths. Certainly right. in this field. Yes. <laughs> we'll discuss more of this in detail later. But I, I just want the listeners to know if they don't already that you know this this Treves book as being the the primary source of information about Joseph Merrick is the basis uh, in large part on the 1979 off-Broadway and then on-Broadway stage production that led directly to the David Lynch movie in 1980. So the, the show, this podcast, is in its way by us now going back through Joseph uh, Carey Merrick's life. Uh, we'll be pointing out differences in... Uh, and alluding to the Treves reminiscences and then in, in some parts the Norman piece as, as part of a dispelling of some of these things that have, you know, most famously probably appear in the David Lynch movie, The Elephant Man. So back to Jeanette. Uh, um, Merrick, so he was born in Leicester. Treves describes his family as middle class not well-to-do, but not not dirt poor. So if you could describe for us a little bit about Joseph Merrick's birth, his parents, you know, where he lived, his family structure and that type of thing in Leicester. Well, Joseph's upbringing was indeed very poor. He was born in the slum area of Leicester um, on Lee Street. And um, Lee Street is still there today, although it's been renamed slightly. Um, But, um, you know, in those days you had the the river saw that kept on bursting its banks every, every time there was a heavy storm. And so that area was always flooded. Um, Everybody in that area suffered Tremendously, the family would have scratched a living, um, and uh, Joseph, uh, when he was born, incidentally, let me just uh, go on to this. When he was born, he didn't show any signs of his condition at all. Uh, it was only when he was a few years old that he started manifesting um, some changes to his forehead. Uh, which um, started to be a bit suspicious. But, you know, what you were saying earlier about trees, let me just touch on that slightly. Almost everything that's ever been published up until now, uh, or broadcast or TV, plays, whatever, has its basis in those memoirs. Um, And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's pretty dodgy ground when you, when you do absolutely everything based on just one person's account. That's always going to lead to some dodginess, isn't it? So, uh, and I'm, I'm kind of going offbeat a bit, so you can pull in the reins for me. No, no, you're perfectly fine. So there's a story that he produces in his autobiography that refers to what I guess might be a popular superstition at the time. Um, I don't think in Joseph's case it was a one-off. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong. That um, his condition stemmed from his mother when she was pregnant with Joseph tripping or, or being startled by an elephant or something like that and falling and that and that is the condition that he had, and and he believed that up until the day he died, as far as I know. Yeah, well, it's called maternal impression. 
And it was quite a, a, a well-known uh, myth at the time that uh, if the mother goes through a fright or something like that, um, that uh, it can have impact on the child. Or if she drinks a cup of coffee, it might have a, um, a, a big a birthmark or, or something along those lines. But, um, you know, maternal impression was quite rife and Mary Jane certainly prescribed to that. And she was, um, as far as we know, she was in Humberstone Gate and there was a procession of elephants there. And it may have even, I believe it was part of the massive Wombwells menagerie. Mm. Uh, so there were uh, elephants there. She got too close and the elephant... Um, startled her. I've also read accounts that it tripped her up, she fell under it, whatever. But I go along with startled her. And um, this was when she was six months pregnant um, and she believed with all her heart that this was a cause of Joseph's uh, condition. And uh, Joseph went along with it and uh, that became part of his legend, if you like, as a performer. The family, um, his... There was some, something be- befell this family, for lack of a better word. Um, Joseph Merrick was the firstborn son. And then there were three, I believe, other sons that followed. Yeah, John Thomas was the first one, the last one that was discovered. That was a recent discovery. May made yeah. that discovery. His brothers all died, either in early childhood or yes. um, early infancy. And then there was a daughter born yes. who was severely crippled. Yeah, she was Eliza, yes, Maria Eliza, yeah. But she survived, granted only to live, like, I believe a year after Joseph Merrick passed. That's correct. And, and so... And to, to, to all intents and purposes, as far as we know, she died alone. And she was a cripple, but there's... Is there... Well, what I'm getting at is that the, the mother wasn't exactly of the best of health there was some kind of medical issue going on with with the mother and all of her children suffered how how does that go into what what what, what's your take on on what exactly was going on with this family joseph's mother died when he was young Mm -hmm. Um, and that really was the crush of joseph's life i mean um and shortly after she died um, Rockley Merrick, Joseph's father, went on to seek um, a mistress and he eventually married her. And um, he remarried and Joseph went to live with her, him and uh, her children. Um, that was a very, very unhappy experience for Joseph um, because uh, she obviously didn't want him there. He was a burden on the family. And um, Joseph's life from the moment he moved in with her was an absolute misery. There were uh, demands on him. And by this time, let me just go back slightly, because it's important that I, that I tell you the story leading kind of up to that. Joseph had a, a couple of jobs that he'd done. One of them was working in the Freeman's Cigar Factory, um, in Upper Hill Street, which is just round the corner from where he lived in Lee Street. And the job that he had was rolling cigars. But, you know, by that time, his his hand had become really cumbersome. One hand was very 
very um, very genteel and uh, and small, while the other one was very very heavy and cumbersome, and that was becoming um, more and more evident as it grew older. And the job of rolling uh, cigars uh, became a nightmare for him. He just couldn't do it because it, a delicate touch was needed for that job, and he didn't have the delicate touch, and so he was dismissed from that job. From then on, he had to seek employment um, and he couldn't find work. Um, and um, he took to um, selling um, some haberdashery items uh, from a tray around his neck about the town from door to door, etc. Um, now, getting back to his home life with, uh, with um, the wicked stepmother of the East... <laughs> I call her that because she really was a nightmare. And um, and, and the, the life there was just intolerable. Um, he was forced to go out and sell these wares from the tray around his neck. Um, he was unable to uh, reach the quota of sales that his, that his father set him. And he became really quite strict and nasty, did, uh, did, did Rockley at this time, probably because he was being pestered by his new wife to... Uh, to uh, make Joseph at least pay for his own keep um, um, in his new home. Um, and he couldn't actually make that money. He couldn't bring it in. And on many occasions, she threatened to throw him out. She would give him much smaller portions than for any of her own children. And um, uh, and uh, we... It, it is believed, or at least I think it says in 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 Tree's memoirs. Well, I'm not absolutely sure on the on the wording of it. That's that's more than you deserve. Something along those lines. So we know that Uncle Charles identified his body at the time of death. Seems again basing this. If we look at Treves. Joseph never experienced any love in his life. We know that he was loved by his mother. It seemed like his relationship with his father's brother was one of love and some compassion shown to him by that side of the family. So could you go into what what were the circumstances that led him into his Uncle Charles's house and then out of it into the workhouse? Well, could I say, once again, it's in my opinion, not not the friends, um, Treves wanted to be the sole um, um, saviour, or for want of a better word, of this piece. He completely ignored the fact that his mother may have loved him. In fact, she did. She loved Joseph very much when he was growing up. Um, I can't say very much about um, Joseph Rockley, Joseph's uh, father, but he seems like a pretty much stern character. Um, So besides his mother, Joseph's mother, uh, his uncle Charles Barnabas was the the only one that ever showed him uh, kindness in the family. Um, Incidentally, um, in addition to uh, Joseph's own uh, immediate family living in Lee Street, another relative of the family also lived further down the road in Lee Street. Um, And I I can't tell you about their relationship at all, but I'm sure as a child Joseph would have visited his uncle on several occasions that they became close. And when Rockley remarried and lived with with um, Emma Anthill, um, when she sort of said, you know, 
This is more than you deserve. This food here is more than you've earned. And he, he received smaller portions. But the time when he was kicked out and he would have gone to his uncle, his, in fact, his uncle found him on the street, um, he took him in. And once again, that, that love between the two of them uh, would have been stirred up. Um, and, you know, Joseph would merrily have lived out his days, I'm sure, with his uncle, had it not been for the fact that uh, Charles' wife um, had a, a child of her own. And being, you know, the, the kind soul that Joseph was, he didn't want to be a burden on their own family. And so he left, and he left to uh, become uh, an inmate at the workhouse. Uh, about um, Victorian Lester, since you had mentioned him going around hawking wares door to door, maybe Neil can fill us in on, it was a pretty big industrial city at the time, was it not, Neil? Uh, yes, it was. It was quite a affluent city. It was, um, like any other city, I had its poor areas, I had its slums, especially around the Wolf Street area, which is where Merrick uh, was born and raised. Um, but um, its chief industry was um, uh, sock making, socking making, um, hosiery, and also boot and shoe. And that, that, there was plenty of factories, and um, they, they were dotted all across the city. Um, so yeah, it was, it was quite an, an affluent city for its age, for its, its era. And in one stage, and I can't remember when this was. I think it was a late medieval period, but uh, probably later than that. It was one of the richest cities in Europe, if not the richest. Um, so it was it was um, heavily based on manufacturing. There's a fair bit of money around there. But again, as in with the Victorian areas, as any city in the UK during the um, Industrial Revolution, it had its, its rich um, uh, factory owners mixed in with the poor workers. Uh, but not, not the largest. I mean, you've got Nottingham not far away. Yeah. which was probably a bit bigger. You've got Birmingham, which was a lot bigger and a lot more industrious-based. Um, but they, they, it was one of the big towns, really, at that time. It wasn't actually designated a city until around about 1919, but it was a fairly large town. I mean, going back to Merrick's uh, family life, I mean, I think uh, his mother, the Pottertons, their actual family came from Yorkshire, I believe, and were quite yeah. big in the agriculture business. Um, um, and uh, by all accounts, there is one account that I read that um, it's Mary Potts and his mother um, was actually a, a cripple as well, which may have impacted on, as you alluded to earlier, John, the family suffering from various ailments and illnesses. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Marion Eliza was also diagnosed with or um, described as a cripple as well. Mm. So he was, he was, he was, was again, was all, but they were quite, uh, the, a sickly family, shall we say, for the want yes. of a better phrase. Yeah. Um, compared to many other families in the area, they, I mean, Rockler, Joseph's father, was um, in employment. He was a Burham um, uh, cab driver. Um, he also had a haberdasher's in later life. His uh, uncle ran a barber shop in Leicester, um, which no doubt we'll come to later on. Because he, um, Charles Robinson and Joseph all played a prominent part in Joseph's life. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so whilst they weren't, you know, flushed with cash, they were able to look after themselves. Really. When, when he uh, took a job as a hawker, I know we don't know specifically about Merrick's case, but did they 
go into employment like almost like as as a uh, were they like independent con contracting to use a modern day term uh, from an employer or is this like a family run how well, how, how how would hawking work and do we know where it, well generally look, where where a person not Merrick specifically would be well, hawking goods those, where he would be doing that at yeah I mean in those days I mean it's because Rockley had his own haberdashery he would actually provide Joseph with the tray to go from door to door selling the items gloves uh, bobbins um, uh, other items uh, maybe ribbons uh, definitely shoelaces these kind of items would have been hauled the streets and there was a period as well where he sold newspapers but he would have actually applied for a, a license and I believe on one particular occasion his license was revoked uh, and so he couldn't actually do that hawking for a period of time but it was yeah, definitely within the family yeah right. i mean it was like kind of a mobile arm of rocky merritt's business yeah. wasn't it really yes it was yeah yeah, yeah. So, so yeah joseph would apply at the uh, town hall in leicester for, for a license and he would yeah. have been granted one um, therefore, if any policeman or, or whatever stopped him, he, all he had to do was produce a license to say he had a legitimate reason to go for him to be hawking. Yes. Um, he'd actually paid for the license, um, or rather the family did. Um, yes, it was revoked, mainly because um, round about that time, um, his, his deformities had started to worsen, and mm. he was being followed by local children and other people, yeah. and, and the, basically there was crowds gathering around him as he was trying to sell his wares, which That's was correct, a, yeah. essentially a public nuisance for the police to, to, mm. to monitor, uh, or rather maintain. So, so his licence was, was actually yeah. revoked on that, that, for that reason. Yeah. As uh, he would be going out hawking, especially if he had a quota to meet, he could be going fairly far afield from his house. Mm. And he is encountering, he's knocking, he's going door to door, knocking on doors. So, yes. you know, he's having to interact with the public, knock on doors, try to sell yeah. stuff, bar, you know, um, be a salesperson. Um, yes. and, and so, as Neil said, you know, his deformities really uh, started to take hold uh, and yeah. it's become too obvious into where he was getting harassed on the street and things. So he, it was yeah. revoked. He would have had to have some degree of socialization with the public, you know, to be able to do this job, although I guess he did yeah. it poorly. I mean, definitely he did. I mean, he wouldn't have just um, tried to sell items to the poorer classes. Obviously, they, they probably had less money or, or equal amount of money as he did. So he, there'd be no point in doing that. He would have knocked on the doors of people that had more money, more affluent homes. So he would have got uh, an opportunity to see fine homes, middle-class homes, poor homes. So he would have got a lot of interaction with those people, met a hell of a lot of people and gathered experience of life that would have taken him forward uh, to help him in his life. Right. Um, so uh, the, any depiction uh, that states otherwise is just utter nonsense. And there's a... Also, oh, go ahead. So, sorry, John. Yeah, I'd just like to add. I mean, I, there's also, uh, I'd like to point out that, again, as the deformities um, kind of took hold, um, his, his leg... His leg and his hips were, were beginning to trouble him. So mm. it, it would seem that what he started to do was rather than go knocking door to door, he would actually hang around the clock tower in Leicester, which is slap bang in the centre of Leicester. It is the main point 
of the sitter, um, yeah. which means you get a lot of pedestrian traffic passing through. Because it kind of mm. there's three or four roads that all converge into one at that point. It is essentially an island with a big clock tower in the middle of it. Mm. So he's, he's, he's hanging around that area. So there's lots of shops, lots of businesses, lots of people doing trade all around there. So there is a great mixture of life going through of Leicester, from the rich to the poor, all converging around that point. They're all there. And, and again, that, it's one of two reasons. One is he, he, he couldn't manoeuvre as well as he could do, so he stayed in one point, and he chose the point where the most amount of people would go, yes. and that would be the clock tower. So he yes. would see a lot of mixture from marketers, because the market's not far away from uh, the clock tower, tradesmen, mm. shop owners, and the, the, the regular workers, and so on and so forth. So it, it, the one spot in Leicester where you're guaranteed a crowd shall be the clock tower. Yeah, still yeah, the same yeah. Today. yeah. Um, to, just to say something about the the leg situation, he did have a very bad fall when he was younger, and it became infected and diseased, um, and that's why he he couldn't walk. He had a. a, a yeah. Dread, dreadful limp uh, at that point. Uh, also, with regards to the hawking, I'm sure, although it's not sort of documented, I'm sure he would have taken advantage of, say, long queues, wherever yes. lots of people were accumulated in one spot. He would have taken advantage of that because it was a captive audience. Yes, yes, absolutely. Now, there's an essay in your book, Jeanette, that addresses this point of uh, his hawking and and how and his childhood and then how it relates to his socialization that would run counter to Treves's reminiscences and 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 again things we see all up in in popular culture about his socialization skills read the book if you want to get different perspective on that but I will point out that it that he didn't attend school up up until he was in his like early teens, twelve maybe or thirteen, when he was made to go out to work. Mm-hmm. Um, his experience as, as hawking, as I had said earlier, did bring him in contact with the public and of the different social classes of the public. He would be, as you said, walking up to some of the finer houses um, mm-hmm. to sell his wares, which would run counter to what Treves said in his reminiscences when he took. Merrick to visit his home that Merrick believed that <laughs> all people lived in houses with uh, footmen with powdered wigs and <laughs> mar- marble you know uh, it's utter nonsense isn't it right <laughs> and then of, of course as we get into his sideshow career you know there's a lot of interaction that needs to be taking place between himself and his co-workers and his managers and everything mm-hmm. Which, yeah. which kind of tells the lie of, of what Treves was trying to get across in his reminiscences. So. Yeah. Well, Treves well, wanted to sell his book, and he wanted to sensationalise it as much as possible so he'd sell as many copies as he could. Um, and if I sound cynical, uh, well, you know, I, I, <laughs> I don't particularly like Treves' account. Um, he was, as you as we said earlier, he was a top surgeon, and uh, he knew that people would uh, most definitely accept his word over a lowly showman's account. Um, so, yeah. Right. Um, were you going to chime in, Philip? 
Well, I mean, basically, uh, what happened when uh, Joseph had been in the workhouse for some years, and he, obviously his time there was was dreadful, and uh, he he couldn't really find a way of getting away. He had left the workhouse briefly after he'd originally gone in for just a few weeks, but he couldn't survive on the outside world, so he had to go back in through through uh, with no option. Uh, he he'd heard of um, one of the local showmen. Uh, and that is, of course, um, Sam Tor, and uh, he he's decided to write to him to say, look, should I exhibit myself? You know, as as uh, as what they called a curiosity at the time. And um, Tor actually came to see him personally at the workhouse, and uh, he he left the workhouse at the very end of August 1884, and within days he was uh, exhibiting himself at the uh, the Gladstone. So, sorry, at the yeah the Gladstone vaults in the basement of the Gaiety Palace, which is on the junction of Worth Street and Gladstone Street, just literally yards from where he'd been born in Lee Street in Leicester. That sadly the building was demolished a few years ago, and it's still an empty site today um but obviously something of of uh of, of what joseph merrick presented has only a very limited shelf life because once you've you've seen his deformity and and you've gawked at it there's nothing else to do uh, so you can only exhibit yourself for a certain amount of time in in one place and so um talk got together with a, a conglomeration of various agents from around from around the country um there's a mr ellis of nottingham a chap called george hitchcock uh, sam roper and and tom norman and they basically took merrick uh, through various places uh, eventually george hitchcock uh, escorted uh, joseph down to london to meet Tom Norman. Tom Norman was just starting a small series of exhibitions, basically in uh, briefly rented out or even unpaid for uh, empty shops in London, where he'd have the exhibition for a while, and then just before the police would close them down or they'd ask for the rent money, he'd shut the place up and move on. So, so you know, Tom Norman was, in to an extent, a shady character, but it, I would say a lovable rogue, certainly not in the same way that he appears as the fictional character Bites in the David Lynch movie. Uh, Tom Norman and Joseph Merrick... Uh, got on well. Joseph, if anything, had the upper hand in their relationship. Not only did they split the takings 50-50, but uh, all the pamphlets that were sold, uh, Joseph got all the income from that. Uh, he it, now, Although it was the formality of the time to call someone by their surname, Tom Norman always referred to, to Joseph as Joseph. Uh, they were a partnership, and uh, although they didn't live in great conditions, they lived, uh, both of them, fairly hand-to-mouth in the same state. Uh, Tom Norman did, was not living in nice hotels while whilst Joseph was covered up in a corner in a, in a horse blanket. Um, but after a while, um, things got shut down in London. And to be honest, Tom Norman and Joseph were not together for that long. It's really only for a few months. But um, um, Norman suggested that uh, Joseph join Sam Roper, who was taking things further afield, especially into Europe. And this is the time where we get the classic vision of Merrick as the chap in the cloak and the oversized yachting cap with the face mask. Before that, he'd travelled around in just a large cap, carpet slippers, a long coat, and a muffler around his face. It was, it was Roper's creation. To be honest, I would say that Roper had far more to do with Joseph's life than any of the other agents that he worked with, uh, because he was with Roper for, for quite some time, and the others were, were fairly brief tenures.
Yeah. Um, could I just say, with regards to um, the reason why the show in London on the Whitechapel Road closed down, uh, well, yeah, you'll have to read the book for the full account because it is detailed there. Uh, but just to give you some loose information, uh, Frederick Trees heard of, um, of the elephant man across the road at 123 Whitechapel Road and went to look for himself. In fact, it was one of his um, uh, his medical colleagues that uh, told him about him. So he went over to look for himself. And when he got there, he wasn't given the um, the uh, the trumpet blowing, um, um, if you like, uh, welcome that he had hoped for, being the you know the surgeon that he was. And uh, things didn't go exactly to plan. Um, and uh, soon after that. The, sh the show was closed down. Now, you can come to whatever conclusion you want. Please read the book. It will detail lots of stuff there. Um, but, you know, public opinion was changing hugely at that time. And where these kinds of shows were being closed left, right and centre in the UK, this was also happening in Europe as well. The tide was changing. Uh, what was once good entertainment was now being looked upon as our oh, poor soul, you know. So, uh, so I just wanted to throw some light on that. The way the way that Treves's reminiscences run, it kind of it doesn't jump around, but it but it it puts Tom Norman in the role of the person who ended up uh, traveling with him. He just refers to the showman throughout mm. the entire reminiscence. He doesn't distinguish between managers he he just so you assume just by reading mm. trees that it was tom norman who he went to work for out of the workhouse tom norman yeah. who went with him over to europe tom norman who robbed him of his money oh, that, no. that, uh, um, I would, now we know that's not true as we'll get into we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves a little bit so trees visits um, merrick at the shop in Whitechapel road examines him there at the site and then takes him back to London Hospital to do further examinations, am I correct? And also takes the first photographs. Well, he actually goes to see him, as you say, first and foremost at the, at the show. And the invitation is given that I would like to further examine you uh, across the road uh, at the hospital. And Joseph did indeed go over there and was examined and maybe a, 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 a small fee uh, exchanged hands or something, I don't know. Um, and he was presented, as you stated earlier, to the Pathological Museum. But uh, without going into too much detail, there was a point when Joseph had enough of this and he got fed up with this going to the hospital all the time. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, I'll, and I'll leave it there. Read the book. Read the book. Whereas in the Dave, pe uh, people who only know the story from the David Lynch movie actually see Joseph Merrick abducted from the <laughs> London hospital and that's how he makes his way to Europe. A complete it, falsehood. Yeah, it's not only fictional, but it's out of the chronology as well. Yes, yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and also, people. incidentally, um, Tom Norman, I'm sorry to, to talk over you there, Tom Norman um, wasn't an old man. <laughs> he was only two years older than Joseph. So he was a young man. So the film not only pictured him in doing things that he didn't actually do, but got the, got the age completely wrong. Right. 
public criticism of these sideshow shops. Now, maybe uh, Philip or Neil could help me out here. I wondered, so Tom Norman had a shop on Whitechapel Road in the East End. Uh, do we know of any other s- similar type shops that were in operation around in, in the East End of London at the time? Or was this one shop kind of in, unique to, to that location and only existing there for a brief period of time? Well, I personally can't tell you of any other shops uh, that existed were used for that. That, that. There must be records of it. I don't know them. What I can say with, in reference to this particular building, uh, rumour has it, it is the very same structure where some Barker had rented out the shop front during the time of the Ripper murders to put up, you know, uh, bad shop dummies covered in blood to represent the Ripper victims, that, that infamous story. Believe, apparently it's the same building. The, the, the building in question at the time when Tom, and, Tom Norman used it, and indeed was the case for many of them, they were simply empty for a short period of time. Now, what he would do was, if he had to, he would rent them for a period of time, just for a week or a couple of weeks. Occasionally, if it was something like a long bank holiday weekend, he would actually ask the owner to, uh, to or the, the letting agent to borrow the key, simply could inspect the property. He'd do the shows there over the long weekend. And then at the end of the long weekend, without the owner or agent having no idea about what had gone on, he'd hand the key back and said, sorry, it's not suitable for my purposes. Uh, I believe, I mean, I may be wrong on this, so I'll put that up front, uh, but there were there was a show of some kind uh, near to Books Road um, around the time that Polly Nichols was murdered in August 1888. I think I read a newspaper account, and uh, basically it was a description of, of the environs of Books Road, where they mentioned there was a, some kind of show. But again, going back to what Philip said, I mean, the best analogy I can come up with, a modern time analogy I can come up with, is the pop-up shops that we see in the high streets today, of shops that are empty, that all of a sudden start selling perfumes with the guy with the big tannoy system shouting out, roll up, roll up, come and buy your perfumes here, as it were. Mm. Um, it's, 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 that's probably the best modern-day analogy you can get, except obviously the, the products were, were slightly different. Forgive me for asking, but isn't Bucks Road just around the corner from Whitechapel Road? That's correct. Yeah. I mean, in most so, the so, <clears throat> Could they have been talking but, about the same show? Because yeah. it was really close by. Well, this was at August 1888. Um, are, are we talking about the same oh, show? Oh, no, Joseph. Well, Joseph yeah, was at the hospital. But it, but, but it may be the same guy. It may be Tom Norman setting yeah, up the yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. It may have been something that he'd well, done yeah, before. But the police the closed down, well, the police closed down the show, though, unless, of course, he, he opened it up again. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, they can they shoot it down. I mean, if we should say, uh, mention that, you know, term, I'm actually doing a book with um, Adam Wood. Uh, basically, uh, it's called the, the Police Code. It's coming out uh, in a few days' time, actually. And oh. it, it co- covers, um, it's, it's a policeman's Bible. It covers all sorts of incidents that the police uh, are expected to, to uh, come across during their life as a policeman. And um, I, I, there is an actual um, passage that deals with Indecent prints, exhibitions, or songs. Um, and it, it basically, um, if I quote it, every person uh, willfully exposing to view any street, road, highway, or public space, or in the window, or the part of any shop so situated, any obscene print, picture, or other indecent exhibition is liable to be apprehended and dealt with as a rogue and vagabond. And which then comes under the, the Rogue and Vagabonds Act, which was an all encompassing act for the period for. 
for any offence, really. The police could... could yeah. They, they saw something that you were doing illegal and that you, there was no direct reference to it or no direct law to it. They could do you basically on the road and bag a yes. <laughs> um, But, um, yeah, yeah, I just thought I'd quite throw that in uh, with regards to the actual closing down of the show. Huh, that's interesting, yeah. because I was kind of trying to make the point that there's no evidence that we know of, at least today, that there were multiple different shops of the same kind of where the police conducted like an orchestrated raid uh, to close down all of these shops. So you would have thought that might have made the papers or someone, you know. It seems that this, this specific shop, as Jeanette kind of alluded to, was targeted, or that's the only one we know of anyway, just probably based on the elephant man's fame. But Yeah, I mean, obviously, sorry, please, carry on. Well, I was going to say, I think you should say that, John, because um, essentially, I mean, the show was there for, for, okay, albeit a short period of time, but it was only there for a few days. So we've we've got the beat constable, whose beat would be actually up and down the Whitechapel Road outside that shop. Um, I cannot believe that he would fail to notice what was going on in this shop, which would indicate to me that he only acted on not what he saw, but rather what was reported by a third party. Whoever that third party was, is entirely up for others to, to discuss. Yeah. Yeah. It would seem that they actually acted on a complaint rather than acted on their own, on their own, or yeah. on what they saw. That's uh, good information to know. <laughs> I'll let the listeners reach their own conclusions, though. But that leads to him going to Europe, correct? Mm-hmm. This, this inability to operate with Tom Norman in, in Whitechapel. Yeah. Well, I mean, let me just say that Joseph had uh, saved up £50. I mean, £50, that was a hell of a lot of money. When you consider that the, the average poor person was earning less than tuppence an hour, that, that's a lot of money. Uh, and so um, he amassed that money over his time working in the show. And then when Whitechapel closed down, that, uh, the show there closed down, he was forced to carry on, uh, you know, working, basically. He really wanted to buy himself a little cottage somewhere um, in the countryside. And that was his dream. So um, he then uh, met up with this. And I don't exactly know how he met this showman, but it was by the name of Ferrari and uh, he uh, Joseph went to uh, Belgium and um, and the show was over there and uh, it, unfortunately it was met with disgust um, it, you know the uh, people's opinion of the shows just as over here w- was really not very good over there either and so uh, that on top of the fact that Ferrari um, stole Joseph's £50 savings and left him destitute near starvation on the continent. And uh, Joseph, having no money, somehow boarded a ferry uh, from Belgium to come over to the, uh, the UK. Um, it shows you, uh, I believe there's a, a snippet in the film where it shows you where Joseph is on the top deck and Rain is beating down on him. That's very dramatic. I don't know if it happened like that. But you know what? Considering that people were really frightened of him, he had his deformity was bad enough when he was younger, but by this time it really was quite severe. I should imagine the captain wouldn't want him anywhere, anywhere near his paying customers. So... Um, maybe that's true. Maybe he was on, on, on the top, top deck of the boat. But somehow he arrived back 
he arrived back at Liverpool Street Station in London. Um, now, if you've ever seen the Elephant Man film, please do see it. There are elements of artistic licence, but in the most part it's accurate and I love it. Um, it's shot in black and white too, beautiful. But, yeah, you know, the part where he gets off the train, he's persecuted all the way through the, the station. Children are actually trying to grab hold of his cloak. Whether or not they did that, I don't know, but I don't doubt it. That they were, you know, following him here, up staircases, here, there and everywhere, people screaming, men crowding around him, trapping him in a corner. All of that I can believe, 100%. Uh, eventually, um, the police take him to a second-class waiting room where he is huddled on the floor in a corner. And Treve said that they found his calling card in Joseph's pocket. And do you want me to go on? Do you want me to, do you want sure, to come sure, in Sure, you can go on. And, and uh, Philip and Neil, uh, feel free to chime in as well. Yeah, so uh, it shows in the film that they took Joseph to the hospital. In fact, Treves went to the station and picked Joseph up and took him back to the hospital. Um, they took him in a cab. And uh, once he got there, well, once again, we've got Treves' account and we've got the film account. And I think the truth, you know, is, is kind of in the middle somewhere. And that is that he was there. What are we going to do with him now? He's not um, a, a patient that can be cured. He's an incurable case. And hospitals then, just as today, do not take on incurable cases. They're put into, I don't know what you call it, special um, homes. I forget the, the name for these places hospices. where... Yeah, yeah, hospices, yeah. exactly. Well, um, in those days, perhaps they didn't have hospices. I'm, I'm not sure. But it was yeah. an incurable case. And so what they did... They gave him a small room to start off with in the annex of the hospital to keep him away from the other patients. Now, there's a scene in the film where a nurse comes in. She's bringing him breakfast. That all flies up in the air. She's got a tray. Um, that all goes up in the air. And... Um, She's frightened so much by him that she screams and whatever. Well, that actually did happen. Um, she apparently wasn't properly prepared for what she saw, and the and the breakfast uh, or whatever it was did actually go up in the air. Soon after that, um, the, the question arose again: What are we going to do with him? We can't put him on an ordinary ward. So Francis Cargon, the uh, the chairman of the hospital, wrote a letter to the Times newspaper, appealing for donations from the general public to provide him um, with some kind of um, uh, home there, it, it, even in the short-term home. Well, they received so much money, a flood of money came in from uh, well-wishers, that they had enough money now to provide him with a home at the hospital for the rest of his life, which was not going to be very long. So... There was an area at the far of the east wing of the hospital, which was called Bedstead Square. And Bedstead Square was the area where all the bed frames were actually taken. They were repainted or they were repaired uh, or whatever. Um, 
And that area there, there were a couple of rooms there which were used by the maintenance staff um, in later years to become the catering wing. Um, and there, two rooms were, I believe, knocked into one, um, and he was provided everything that he needed in that in those rooms. As far as Treves's examination of Merrick during this time, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. So um, initially, uh, as we had said earlier, when he was still at Whitechapel Road. Merrick was taken across to the London Hospital. Trees was able to examine him. I believe photographs were taken, correct? Yeah, and, yes. And, and at this point, he was put on display for the Pathological Society for the first time. Yes. Yep. And then after the Liverpool Street Station incident, and he gets back to the London Hospital, Treves takes... I assume he was the photographer. Maybe Philip would even know this, but uh, I, I assume Treves was the one taking a picture. I don't so. believe I don't believe he was. I don't know who the photographer was. But I've never been led to believe that Treves himself took the photographs. No, uh, myself neither. Me. But photographs were retaken, and now did he appear in front of the Pathological Society again at that point? Because I remember there's a he gave a presentation at one point where Merrick wasn't present. Uh, yeah, that was in, uh, I think it was March 1885. <laughs> uh, well, it will tell you in the book, but I'll just give you a little taste here. There became a point, according to Tom Norman's own memoirs, that Joseph was getting quite fed up with this to and in going to the hospital and that, uh, you know, he didn't mind showing himself in front of people for money but he was pretty fed up that he was actually doing this in front of people and not getting anything in return. Right. Yeah, but that was when he was back at the show. Right. Yeah. I and mean, that's one thing people don't tend to pick up on with Barney Merrick. He's quite an astute guy, especially when it yeah. came to business. He was very aware of, of his, what some would say, deformities. And Definitely. He, 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 could, he could market those, he could sell those. He knew what he was and he, what, what he was about. So yes. all this to, uh, to and from with, with regards to trees and the London Hospital is affecting his income. I mean, at the end of the day, the guy needs to survive. And because exactly. there was no, as, as you pointed out, Jeanette, there, there was no um, certainty with, with regards to his stay at the London Hospital. They, they could have kicked him out at any time. He was very concerned of where he would end up, where he would be. Mm. And, mm. He had, and, and they were essentially taking away, or preventing him, I should say, from um, pursuing his livelihood exactly. at the end of the day. Exactly. You pick up on that frustration in, in, in what he said. Exactly. And do you remember what I said earlier on? And, I'm, you know, I'm not saying that this is uh, black and white. I'm not saying it actually happened. But I, I gave you the, the, the uh, idea that, you know, perhaps someone had the show closed down. Well, mm. that actually happened, I believe, after Joseph's said, well, I've had enough of this, too, in the throwing. I don't want this anymore. Yeah, it forced his hand around. Yeah. Yeah, we, we allude to that in the play as well. Yeah. Talk about Merritt's specific condition. There's a pamphlet that was produced, I believe, it, um, when he was being put on display, maybe by Norman, that has a sketch of Merrick, the one that says the elephant man freak or something like that on the cover. This is the one that has his autobiography, short autobiography on the back, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. So there's a that, there's a sketch of Merrick on on the cover of that pamphlet, 
sketches were made by the London Hospital, I believe at the time of his first visit, and then photographs were taken, and then later, after his return to the London Hospital, more photographs were taken. So between the sketches that we have available and the photographs, and this is only over the course of maybe a two-year time span, you can really see the progression of his disease, or his, mm. uh, I don't know if the disease is even the right medical term for it, but his disability, let's yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, of course, none of those pictures, none of those photos, all the sketches were on the front of the pamphlet. No, no, no. But I'm saying yeah, for, yeah. From, a, from a medical perspective in reviewing, being able to review the progression of his illness from the early sketches to the later sketches to the photographs and then the then the yes. most and then the second set of photographs and then the portrait uh taken where he is in the the his sunday best um yeah. you can really see that over just a few short years this yeah. this um this condition spread rapidly yes um, yes popular diagnosis, um, I don't know if it's the accurate one, is that he suffered from Proteus syndrome. That's correct, yeah. Um, can you uh, tell us a little bit about Proteus syndrome and how yeah. we oh, well, at, in the twentieth late 20th century have been able to go back and, and point to that syndrome as being the most likely af- affliction that um, yeah. Merrick suffered from? Well, let me say that at first they believed that Joseph's condition, condition was elephantiasis, uh, but that's a tropical disease, so they soon outlawed that one. They soon, you know, put that on the scrap heap. Um, then uh, in the 20th century, a new theory arose, and that's the, that he had neurofibromatosis, uh, and that's a skin and a nerve disorder. Um, Joseph actually shows some resemblance of that, but there are other aspects of his condition that aren't related to that. But then in, I believe it was 1985, uh, another condition was suggested, and that was Proteus syndrome. And and Proteus is um, an overgrowth uh, disorder of skin, muscle, nerve, and bone uh, and it's a combination of all three. It's where um, the uh, the nerves are badly affected at the tip um, and instruction is given to the body to keep producing bone upon bone upon bone. And there you have these, these mounds of bone. But he also had a, another... Uh, part of the Proteus syndrome is the papillomatous growth that Joseph had, uh, the pendulous growth of skin that was on his body. That's not neurofibromatosis as far as I know. Um, but Joseph did have warp-type um, uh, things on his... Uh, things. I'm saying things because I don't know the correct uh, scientific term. But he did have wart-type things on his body, and that's related to uh, NF1, neurofibromatosis 1. Um, But then the rest of it was uh, Proteus syndrome. But, you know, later on, you know, I mean, there's only 200 cases 
of Proteus in the world uh, today. So it's, it's really, really um, a rare condition. But, you know, the medical profession have even thought of calling it Merrick's disease because his was a one-off. No one today has ever fully manifest uh, what he had. Uh, so they're thinking about, uh, they were thinking about at one point calling it Merrick's disease. Um, and, of course, his condition got worse with age. Yes. You've got, I mean, the people that have it today. Um, there's a, a particular young lad, uh, I won't mention the name, in, uh, in England. Unfortunately, he had both of his legs amputated because uh, the knees and the legs were growing so badly, bone upon bone, that it was forcing the legs apart and uh, he, he was unable to walk. Also, this spongy, um, folded, um, uh, painful skin condition was on the soles of his feet. His fingers uh, were like uh, tubers. Uh, um, they were very uh, knobbly, and, uh, um, and he couldn't use them. And once again, please forgive the, the term knobbly. I'm, I'm, I know nothing about medicine, and I don't really know the correct words. But there are, as I say, less than uh, 200 people today that have the condition, and that makes scientific research way through the roof expensive. Mm -hmm. So his time in the, in the London Hospital in Bedstead Square... Treves in the in the movie at least it seems like everything and anytime anything ever happened or you know uh, I'm exaggerating slightly but every time you know Merrick would get out of his chair and walk across the room Treves would be at his front door I'm I mean do do we know how often Treves or do we want to guess here how often Treves after he was placed in Bedstead Square actually came to check up on Joseph because I'm referring to some of the, I think it was the only letter that survives from Merrick that he wrote to one of his admirers ah. where, where he mm -hmm. um, was so, he even says something to the effect of, I was, I was so happy to see Dr. Treves when he came and visited last week. He, you know, mm -hmm. I was mm -hmm. so it's happy actually, to see the, the words are actually, I saw Mr. Treves on Sunday said to give you uh, his regards. And it was yes. sent to sent to Leila Maturin, who was yes. a, a, a Scottish uh, widow who had befriended Merrick. Trees had actually introduced her to him because he said he'd actually, you know, he'd like to meet a young lady. Um, she was recently widowed, and Trees thought it'd be a nice experiment for her to actually meet him. But uh, it, it kind of backfired because Merrick was so moved when she shook his hand and smiled at him and said good morning that he, he just couldn't carry on. He just broke down in tears. Doesn't he also say something like, um, I so well, that, well, that, look, I so well, look forward to his visits? says in the film. That's what happened in the film. Whether or not that actually happened, uh, I, I don't know if he broke down in tears. I don't know any of that. To be quite honest, I don't hold a lot of faith in Treves' reports. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I just thought I'd say that. <laughs> but do, doesn't he also say, Philip, in the, let, the letter that I so look forward to his visits or something like that? Um, uh, no, I don't think it does. It's a very brief letter. Just thank, thank you very much for the grouse and the books you sent me. The grouse are splendid. I saw Mr. Trees and he said to give you uh, his, his regards. Oh, okay. Uh, that, that's it. It was it's very brief. All right. Um, hey, I've got the I've got the full quote in front of me. If you want me to read it out, it's uh, dear Miss Martin. Many thanks for the books and the grouse you kindly sent me. The grouse were splendid. I saw Mr. Trees on Sunday. 
He said, I was to give his best receipts, uh, sorry, his best respects to you. With much gratitude, I'm yours truly, Joseph Merrick, London Hospital, Whitechapel. But can, can I, I mean, just, just look at that handwriting. This was a boy yeah. from the slums of Leicester. He was yeah. well educated. His mother was a yeah. Sunday school teacher. She Absolutely, would have taught yeah. him the fine, you know, the finer things um, that would carry him through his life. And, yeah. you know, he was an educated person. Now, from the film, perhaps that doesn't entirely come across, but um, I think that's an important point to remember. And that's, yeah, he that's... did have necessary skills. Absolutely, yeah, I completely agree with you. Mrs. Merrick didn't raise a stupid boy. Um, she, as you say, she was a Sunday school teacher, and yeah. his education would, would not just start and stop at Sunday school, it would also be at home as well. Um, so he, he was very well educated. And it shows, again, um, what the, the thing I will say about him, he does come across as rather naive, and one can, can understand why, um, but not stupid, if you know what I mean. I mean, yeah. by naive. I mean, I'm sure he's, um, in some aspects, he was very, as I stated earlier, he's very astute, especially with, with regards to business and what he was working. But I'm talking yes. about, I mean, there's the famous um, trip to the theatre. Yeah. He was, he was just, I mean, again, we were going on Tuesday's account, but um, he was just struck by the wonderment of it all. So, so on, on some aspects of life, he's very naive. On other aspects, he's very sharp and very astute. Yeah, mind um, you, when I go to the edge, I'm struck by the wonder. Well, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, yeah, we, 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 we all get carried away with, with that, that and, and, you know, but, but again, that shows a very intelligent mind as well, the fact that yes. he can do that, that he can suspend reality for, for fantasy and be totally in the moment, you know. Yeah, I wonder, know about that. <clears throat> I wonder on that point if there was something autistic about him or, because you get these, I know the nurses helped him um, to some extent in building the cathedrals models that he would send out to um, the uh, people who came uh, to see him and stuff as presents. And um, Treves uh, refers to in his reminiscences Joseph repeatedly beating on a pillow to the rhythm of what Treves thought was music in his own head or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then you you see again, it's this is a problem that we we have is that you know we what what tree says we don't know how much to take as yeah. as the truth his fantasy life him believing that the puss in boots performance was actually reality and when he returns back to bedstead square remarking about oh what the characters might be doing now yeah um yes. and his um his uh uh, you know, the fans, you know, again, this is all Treves. Him reading the romance novels and believing that he's going to be, that he's stepping into the roles. His um, dressing kit that Treves buys him. I mean, all these things, if if what Treves says is an absolute truth in all of those matters, at least, then it, then it points at maybe some kind of mental... Uh, Asperger's or autistic, uh, you know, um, condition that afflicted his his uh, brain as well, uh, you know, or or should we just, you know, take it all with a grain of salt because he he was socialized. I mean, he yeah. he couldn't have survived on the streets of Leicester as a well, you know, John, 
Jonathan, I think you've got the nail on the head. It should be taken with a pinch of salt. Joseph knew exactly what was going on. I don't believe for one minute that he asked, is she still locked up in the dungeon now or something similar to, 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 that, uh, to, to that degree. Uh, Joseph wasn't a stupid person. He may have expressed wonderment at watching the play yeah. and performance, but he wouldn't have thought they were still locked in. I really don't go along with that at all. While I'm, I'm sort of talking about the, the Jeeves and, and, and Joseph, I'd like to mention one other thing, although slightly um, um, separate from, from this topic. Jeeves, uh, Joseph lived at the um, Bedstead Square, but, you know, it wasn't all a magnanimous uh, um, um, uh, an act that was a charitable act. It wasn't all that. In my opinion, and, you know, I'm not representing the views of the Friends, in my own opinion, he was there so the scientific community could have him there whenever they needed him there, whenever they needed to examine him, whenever they needed to put him before the Pathological Society. In other words, it wasn't all done as a charitable act. They expected something in return. Joseph saw all these different people. Well, trees would tell us he saw all these different guests come to his room because he wanted to socialise Joseph. Joseph was already socialised. He knew what society was all about. What it was about, in my opinion, is that hospitals in those days entirely depended on public donation. Entirely. And so by these people, and you'll notice there were no low-class or lower-middle-class people that used to visit him. They were all high society and for the price, the price to go and visit him at Bedstead Square would have been quite considerable, I'm sure. I'm sure Trees expected a, a, a good donation for actually having those visitors. So, OK, he made his living in the show and uh, he had people looking and staring at him, but was it terribly, terribly different from the people that used to file, file into his room in Bedstead Square? Isn't that kind of the point that Tom Norman makes? As well. Yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, he just uh, traded one sideshow for another. Exactly. That's, as I say, it's my opinion, as I'm not representing the, the friends on this, but it's one that I hold very, very strongly. I happen to completely agree with your interpretation of that. that uh, my, I was wondering how often Treves actually went to visit him once he was um, put into the rooms versus how much he was just given to the care of the nurses. But I, we probably don't really know the answer to that, do we? Well, I've asked many questions. Jonathan Evans, the curator of the London Hospital Museum and Archives, told me that the hospital has no records at all of Joseph's time at Bedstead Square at the hospital. And, you know, to me, one word comes to mind, that is convenient. Um, uh, how can you not have any records of the most prominent patient you've ever had in your hospital? That really doesn't ring true to me. There you go. Especially when you consider that the, the actual arrangement was unique. Yes, um, indeed. They, they didn't allow it with anybody else. Yeah. So, and, and as you point out, I mean, you know, 
he was again for want of a better phrase and forgive me he was a kind of cash cow for them yeah. when it came yeah. to donations Yes. Um, yeah. So yeah, it, it is quite kind of surprising, especially when you consider when you go to the museum and you look at their archives and they do have a fair fair amount of stuff there. I yes. mean, they've got his his, his, his uh, yacht cap and his, his, the mask and so on. Yeah. But they've not got any other record there. I mean, I well, I spoke to um, Jonathan primarily to ask, how do we know? that Joseph wanted his remains to remain at the Hospital for Science. How do we know that? Is there any, anything written about that? No. And the answer was, we don't have anything. Well, no. OK, that, that, that's pretty convenient. Um, but I, I say that, I know I sound dreadfully cynical on this, but um, I really do believe that, in my heart, I believe that as a, a Baptist um, and a, a, a religious person, he would have wanted his body to have been laid to rest. That's how I think. Right. I agree with yeah. that totally. Yeah, and it's something I feel quite I. strongly on. Um, yeah. Yeah. Before we, I want to discuss the, the situation with his remains here in, in a little bit. Um, I wanted to ask as far as, and this has to do with the parade of the well-to-do in, in, in and out of Bedstead Square to see Merrick. Uh, so we know that Carl Grom put the announcement in the um, London Times asking mm-hmm. for contributions. He asked, then he did a follow-up one, um, yeah. thanking them uh, for all the support. But publicly, I mean, it, I wasn't able to find many, if at all, like newspaper articles throughout that period, you know, discussing <laughs> the fact that this... This guy uh, was there. What is he doing? You know, there was no kind of tabloid frenzy to, no, there to, wasn't. to um, discuss Merrick in the press. Yeah. The, the, the Car Grom article did get a couple of letters in response saying, well, what kind of condition does he have? Why can't he go? You know, people, the public were kind of like, because the letter, initial letter was very vague, of course. Yeah. Um, people were like, well, what's wrong with this guy? Why, why, is, he, uh, why is he there? Did the level of... of Fame in in the public size just become after his death. Did, was the public at large really even aware that he was there, or is this or is 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 this something that has just come afterwards, starting with Trees' reminiscences? I mean, personally, I think that the the public that could read were only aware that he were there through the media, through the papers. I don't think it was big news. I mean, I'm guessing, of course, but I wouldn't think it was big news amongst the poorer classes. Yeah. So the well-to-do, maybe it was just discussed in their social circles more so than any kind of press publicity given to Merrick being at the London Hospital in that they became aware of Merrick at Bedstead Square Mm. through uh, gossip. uh, Yeah. Well, they probably... Sorry, they probably became aware. They probably became aware of him being at Bedstead Square and queued up to get their ticket, to go in and see him. And I'm talking facetiously, of course, but um, it was the thing to go and see the Elephant Man. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I presume I'm no inside knowledge on this, but we're, we're talking about you know various gentlemen meeting at clubs, discussing, especially medical men, discussing things, and you know across that that kind of higher social status um and 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 you know the knowledge would have been at the higher 
level of society, as, as you point out, the, the, the lower working class regular to-dos probably would not be that aware and, let's face it, they had enough of their own problems to even care. To Did it like just, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's seen, their, yeah, their own problems to sort. His, intera- yeah. his interaction with the working class was speaking through the window of of uh, his rooms <laughs> to the workers in 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 the courtyard. From what I can gather, you know. Well, but no, he couldn't do that because um, his actual window. He had one door, one window, and it was below street level. So Bedstead Square, if you like, was a big square, and I can only talk about, you know, my visits there, because I was there before they, many times before they pulled the whole thing down, lamentably. Um, It was a a big um, uh, square, if you like where there was lots of uh, wheelie bins uh, because the the area had been turned into a catering uh, department and Joseph's rooms were next to the catering department. But to get to Joseph's rooms from the street level, from the square, you had to walk down 10 steps, I believe it was 10 steps, into a very narrow passageway. And um, so he would not have been able to see from his window anything but ankles. Is that in Treves reminisces where I'm getting that, that he would show the gifts that people would be sending him to the workers who would pass by in the square? Um, well, you know, I, I should imagine he, he didn't even know who they were from his window, mm-hmm. but, you know, they may have even gone down the stairs to say, hello, Mr Merrick, walked along that passageway. Certainly he became friendly with uh, with the engineers and uh, a son, I don't have the name in front of me, I'm afraid, the son uh, who also worked at the hospital of one of the uh, principal engineers played the fiddle or the violin and used to it go was, to Joseph's um, room. His name was Edward. That's it, that's yeah. it, yeah. And uh, incidentally, it was that family who had... Joseph's armchair until recent times. Okay, maybe we should uh, move along to his death. I know this is getting to be a longer one uh, show here. Um, I, I mean, I'm I'm not short for time, so if, if oh, okay. you need to go on, I'm not short for time. Well, does anyone have anything else to add about his time in Bedstead Square? That's the part of the Lynch movie. that, And I don't know, Philip, if this is uh, the main section of your play as well um but it, it's certainly the 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 part of the lynch movie that that is the focus of the movie and i think it's also the focus of the 79 play this uh interpretation of his time at bedstead square the 79 play um i correct me if i'm wrong guys because i haven't seen it but um from what i've read it's set up to where basically it's kind of has a savior complex and (laughs) the men and women who visit him all being from the upper class are just doing it to uh, assuage some kind of uh, class guilt. Um, We've seen this poor lowly creature. Now we can go back to our footmen with the powdered wigs kind of a yeah. thing. So does anyone have anything that, to add about that time uh, that, in, in, you know, in 
his building of the cathedrals, anything like that, before we move along? Well, yeah, was, um, please, carry on. There was general benevolence shown to him uh, by by certain people. I mean, we've not really referred to Madge Kendall at all here. Now, um, if you see the movie, if you see the play, certainly with some ridiculous aspects of the play, uh, showing that they became very, shall we say, close. Um, but Kendall almost certainly never actually met Merrick. She was a benefactor, and she did care deeply about him. She didn't uh, completely in her lifetime go on about it a great deal. She did mention it in her autobiography published near the end of her life that she'd been one of his benefactors. But she never, she probably never met him. Um, I think it was her husband actually came to actually collect anything that he made for her. But she did send him things. She didn't make a great deal about it at the time. So that's someone who's simply doing it, you know, not, not for any kind of respect, but because they actually felt they needed to do so. Hmm. The Queen visited him. Is that true? It's Princess Alexandra. Right. Rather than the Queen. So she wasn't the Queen at the time. Right. But she was the obviously she was the wife of uh, Edward the Seventh. Mm-hmm. And uh, what were the circumstances with uh, with that visit? It was the opening of the new grocer's wing in May 1887. Edward VII did visit Merrick too. Uh, after opening the wing and giving out flowers to the children and, and what have you, uh, she was then escorted to actually meet Merrick apparently in his own rooms. And, uh, and they just had a nice conversation. He was, they were quite informal about everything. Um, in fact, Merrick actually wrote a letter to her later on thanking her for, for a photograph she had sent him. And uh, apparently, according to Treves, uh, he'd, he'd begun the letters uh, writing, my dear princess, rather than anything formal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, th- so that was quite relaxed. But, but Edward VII actually met, met him as well. Uh, obviously, he wasn't king at the time because uh, Victoria was on the throne. Right. Well, what you just said, Philip, is this is another part of Joseph of uh, uh, Treves' story about Joseph being naive, isn't it? About addressing her as my dear princess, a childlike innocence. I think he may have even uh, alluded to in his uh, memoir. Um, so, yeah, just another fantasy, I'm afraid, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I think I think actually, Jeanette, there's some things you've said um, I don't personally agree with. But then again, okay. it's, it's subjective opinion. A lot of okay. trees. I, I I don't feel that trees himself was the great uh, benefactor that he, he claimed to be. He did exploit Merrick. I think he did make a lot of stuff up. But I don't think he made up everything. Some of the things strike me as being quite plausible. Oh, okay. But, but we'll, <laughs> we'll, 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 fi- we'll find out tomorrow when you come and see the show what you think about uh. that. <laughs> So as I had said earlier, through the progression of the sketches and the photographs, you can see this massive deterioration in his, in his condition. And so the, the, the circumstances of his death, Treves would have you believe that he always wanted to be a normal person, if he could just be a normal person. And this, this is kind of how the reminisce is, is kind of set up. Just this uh, repetition of um, of uh, incidences where Merrick is trying to just be a normal person, all the way up into his until his death, in which he wanted to just for one time sleep like a normal person, and so it suggests that he, uh, for whatever reason, chose this evening to go to sleep laying down flat on his pillow. Uh, uh, apparently, when his uh, um, condition uh, of the condition affecting his head got so bad, the way Merrick would have to be sleeping would be sitting up in bed with his knees up against his chest, his 
hands around his knees and his head resting on his knees. But for whatever reason, according to Treves, he, um, he decided to sleep with his head uh, laying back on a pillow, which caused the weight of the back of his skull to fall backwards. Now, here there's some um, dispute as to what, what medically occurred. At the time, I believe they thought that he had suffocated, but then there was also, correct me if I'm wrong, some fracturing of the vertebrae of his upper spine. And then I think you also hear that maybe it was an accident um, that uh, he had... Uh, it wasn't his choice to sleep this way. I think something is about, like, the position of his body was found in such yeah. a way that he was halfway off of his bed, which might indicate that he was trying to get out of bed and simply had slipped and fallen backwards, I think. So can we uh, talk about a little bit about um, what might have led to his death? Uh, oh, God, who knows? Um, uh, we know that he was found diagonally across his bed, that uh, he had put the pillows in a, in a neat pile. Um, whether or not he put those pillows in a neat pile every time he went to bed, I don't know, or on this just by occasion, I don't know. Um, other than that, I have absolutely no idea. But the medical profession seemed to think that it was definitely the weight of his head um, that uh, basically would have paralysed him uh, because he was the pressure was added to some some nerve or something or, or, or artery yeah. in his neck. Could someone throw some light? I can't remember. Yeah, wasn't wasn't there a, a documentary or something? Yeah, yeah. About five years ago, essentially. The, the, the growth on Merrick's head became so much that mm. um, his head tipped back yes. and the weight of it caused compression um, to the spinal cord or something like that, which yeah. thrown him into a stroke. He then collapsed and the, yeah. afterwards, because it was he was out of it, it, it sorry, Phil, go on. It's also to say the paralysis of the stroke made him unable to move as That's well. Correct. That's correct. Some, yeah. Something like that. And then, then he is situated after, after that because of the, the pressure on, on uh, the windpipe. Yeah. Um, because obviously, uh, once he's lying down, the, 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 the grace at the back had pushed his head forward. Mm. And he, yes, asphyxiated out. So it was kind of like a, a, a mixture of the three different problems all occurring at once in very short time scale. Yeah. That contributed I mean- to his death. I mean, there's only one person that knows the, the reason yeah. for doing it, and that's Joseph, and we'll, and we'll, yeah, we'll never yeah. know that one. Yeah, I mean, I mean Treves tree, so surmises that it was that he, he attempted to sleep lying down, which, uh, as Jonathan points out, he, he was unable to do, and he wanted to sleep like a normal person. Mm. But, um, like I say, this documentary basically stated that it was the actual weight got too much of the neck, tipped the neck back, caused yeah. paralysis, as Philip uh, points out, and then asphyxiation caused the death. Yes. Yes. Certainly the, the, the Lynch film gives a very wrong impression about his demise. I mean, for starters, he didn't actually uh, die at night. He didn't die when he was going to go to bed. He was actually seen by Nurse Island mm-hmm. uh, in the morning of, of the 11th of April, 1890. Uh, a nurse brought him food later on, and he was sitting up in bed looking quite comfortable. And when Dr. Ash came to call him at 3, I think it was 3 o'clock or half past 3 that afternoon, Merrick yeah. was dead across the bed. So it wasn't, yeah. in fact, he was lying down to go to sleep. He was in the middle of the day. Mm. Well, I've got I've got the uh, London Times newspaper article in front of me. It says Mr. Lighthouse not... urged 
sorry, Mr. Harsasha, as you said, he was called to the deceased at 3.30 p.m. on Friday and found him dead. So, yeah, it was, it was 3.30, so it was mid-afternoon. If he was trying to lay down like normal people, why would it be diagonal across the bed? That's not laying down like other people, is it? Yeah. So I, I, I don't get that. So I guess we'll never know. <laughs> it's just an amazing... I mean, even to just fathom that the weight of some the back of someone's head could it be so heavy as to to cause Quite these injuries yeah. it's pretty amazing to even contemplate yeah. isn't it yeah. well they say the circumference of his head was equal to a man's waist yeah. okay so after um, his death Treves dissects his body it's Openshaw that's responsible for the, uh, oh, okay. well, for the autopsy well, oh, and, and uh, Baxter was uh, ba- Baxter held the inquest. Openshaw actually uh, did the autopsy. Okay, so here we get into ripperology. Ph- sorry, sorry, Philip. Did he do uh-huh. the um, uh, the uh, operation, or did he articulate the skeleton? Because on the skeleton case, it says that the skeleton was articulated by Openshaw. I didn't know that he did the, uh, the uh, autopsy. Oh, maybe I'm wrong. I'd always been, thankfully, I don't cover this in the show, but I'd always been under the impression that Openshaw did the autopsy. Maybe, maybe, maybe he, he just... did. Right. Okay. Maybe, I don't. I don't know. Maybe he did. <laughs> <laughs> so, do, uh, Philip, do you do you know uh, about um, uh, Baxter's inquest on this? Uh, no, no. I'm going to have to plead no plead ignorance here. No, I don't know much about it apart from the, that that uh, Win Baxter was presiding at the inquest. That's all. Okay, and and uh, but I believe his I mean his death was ruled accidental, right? And then, and essentially that that's all there there needed to have been done. Yeah. Again, I've got the London Times um, account: uh, death of the elephant man and inquest in, in, on the body of John. I'll tell you what, John, I'll read it all if you if you wish. I mean, sure, that goes goes into it if you're okay with that. Yeah, yeah. See, London Times, uh, eighteen ninety. Uh, uh, reporting to the uh, death of Joseph Merrick or rather the inquest, and I'll, I'll quote, um, an inquest on the body of Joseph Merrick, better known as the Elephant Man, was held yesterday at the London Hospital by Mr Baxter. Charles Merrick of Churchgate, Leicester, a hairdresser, identified the body as that of his nephew. The deceased was 29 years of age and had followed no occupation. From birth he had been deformed, but he got much worse of late. He had been in the hospital for four or five years. His parents were in no way afflicted, and the father, a engine driver, is alive now. Mr. Ash, house surgeon, said that he was called to the deceased at 3.30pm on Friday and had found him dead. It was expected that he would die suddenly. There were no marks um, of violence, and the death was quite natural. The man had been, sorry, I'll repeat that again. The man had great overgrowth of skin and bone, but he did not complain of anything. Witness believed that the exact cause of death was asphyxia, the back of his head being greatly deformed. And while the patient was taking a natural street sleep, the weight of the head overcame him and so suffocated him. The coroner said that the man had been sent around shows as a curiosity. And when death took place, it was decided as a matter of procedure to hold this inquest. Mr Hodges, another house surgeon, stated on Friday last he went to visit the deceased and found him lying across the bed dead. He was in a ward specially set apart for him. Witness did not touch him. Nurse Ireland of the Blizzard Ward said the deceased was in her charge. She saw him on Friday morning 
when he appeared in his usual health. His midday meal had been taken to him, but he did not touch it. The coroner, in summing up, said there could be no doubt that death was quite in accordance with the theory put forward by the doctor. The jury accepted this view and returned the verdict to the effect that death was due to suffocation from the weight of the head pressing on the windpipe. And there it ends. Okay. Mm, mm. So we don't know whether Opachaw actually did the autopsy or not. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm actually referring to Jeanette's book here. Um, it states that uh, Truce took charge of the body and dissected it. He called for the tissue samples to be taken and commissioned plaster casts of Joseph's head right arm and foot. Later, the skeleton was cleaned and articulated by Thomas Horrocks Openshaw, curator of the London Hospital's Pathology Museum. Okay. 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 All right. So that sounds like I was wrong on that one then. Um, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Philip. No, that's all right. Now, at least I mentioned Openshaw. <laughs> Only half from <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> So did it, it said tissues were taken, is that right? Yeah, yeah uh, Trees took charge of the body and dissected it. He called for tissue samples to be taken and commissioned plaster casts of Joseph's right head. Sorry, it's Joseph's right head. I do apologise. Joseph's head, right arm and foot. It'd be interesting because I've never seen any any reference to these plaster casts or seen any, any photos or any other... I, I mean, I, you've not seen photos of them, they're, no? They're, they're in... Uh... Mm. They're in genetic they're book, are they not? Yeah, no, they're, they're, they're coloured, aren't they? They yeah, they are. Is that correct? I mean, I, yeah, when I went up to... Have, yeah. yeah, in the uh, medical college next door, which is where I saw the original skeleton, you've got, um, which stands obviously in a case, you've actually got his plaster cast at the side. In terms of the um, the skin samples, they were apparently, some of them at least, in um, jars of formaldehyde, uh, and they were destroyed during the Blitz. Uh, there were other skin samples that apparently have been buried in an anonymous grave somewhere. Really? I, I, I don't know any more than that about that. I know certainly the, the BBC QED documentary that was shown in the 1990s said that there was a, a private burials held for Merrick's uh, tissues uh, yeah. somewhere in the East End, but they're never referred to where, and uh, I've never heard it referred to anywhere else either. We don't, I mean, I, I personally don't know what happened to Merrick's body apart from his skeleton. Right, right. I mean, it's his family on his father's side um, hailed from Spitalfields. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, my natural assumption would be if he stays uh, somewhere in the East End, it will be the, oh, what's the name of the church there, Philip? We visited it a few years ago what, so, with the church so, bells. So, St. Leonard's? Um, yes, I don't know if, I mean, possibly could that be a likely spot. I don't know. But I would probably think more, it would probably be more a, a, a cemetery rather than probably a, a church cemetery. I mean, what I personally would have loved is that somewhere they would have found out where his mother was buried in Welford Road Cemetery. Yeah. And um, that they would have put them with her. Incidentally, her name doesn't appear on the tombstone, and the belief is the family didn't have the money um, to inscribe her name 
uh, that could be true, but it could also be, of course, that they were a little embarrassed by the association and so didn't put her name on the on the tomb. But there is a, a gravestone there now because the friends had it commissioned a few years back by a Leicester stonemason who donated his time, tools and materials um, to producing a, a lovely granite stone and it's got her name in full on it and Joseph's name in full on it along with his siblings and um, and that's a place where people can lay a floral tribute. So the the skeleton, a reproduction was made at the, of the skeleton, correct? That is on mm-hmm. public display. Yeah. And the the actual skeleton is stuck down in some uh, private warehouse somewhere. But rather being stuck down, it's stuck up. I'm afraid. Stuck up. <laughs> it's in. It's actually in the in the hospital's uh, medical college next door. I believe it's Turner Street. I might be wrong. Um, and it's up on the. I believe it's on the first floor or second floor. Incidentally, as you go up the grand staircase, there's a very imposing portrait of Treves on the wall. <laughs> so uh, yeah. <laughs> now. Um... I assume the three of you, along with myself, believe that there's no reason for the hospital. We would like to see his his bones buried. Isn't that right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they've done all the tests. They've even admitted that uh, the drilling uh, has taken its toll on the bones, and uh, there's very DNA can't be extracted anymore because they're they're falling apart. Basically, well, not exactly falling apart, but they're they're near on it. So, what other purpose than to have it as a trophy? Yes. I mean, why not just give it the, the 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 final grace it deserves? The, the sad thing is, is that uh, Merrick's descendants have stated they believe that he would have liked his body to have gone to research. But as Jeanette said, I mean, th- this was a, a deeply Christian man, and he was he postulated often about you know what would happen to him after he died. And I don't think he would like to be displayed in the case. I think he deserves the dignity now that his bones have no further use to anyone because they were bleached after the after the autopsy, mm. so they can't yield anything of import. He should be given a proper burial. Go ahead. There is a, I was going to say there is a, there is a local campaign kind of gathering momentum. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. It happened. Yeah, but I mean, obviously, in, in the full hour with uh, Richard III in Leicester and all the who are regarding that, um, uh, a campaign kind of gathering momentum in, in local press at least um, for his remains to be returned and well, hopefully, you... as Jeanette points out, to be put placed with, with his mother. That would be ideal. But. Uh, yeah. Yeah, some sort of burial, at least, uh, I think is, is more than the man deserves. Do you know, I, I don't know where you've actually read that. I, this is totally news to me, that, that there was a campaign on the way to have him laid to rest. Are you based in Leicester yourself? I am indeed, yeah. Oh, so you're, you're the guy on the ground. So, uh, yeah, well, this is great news. Yeah, well, um, yeah, I mean, uh, if I, I mean, I'm going on memory again, but um, it, again, it was all—it's all kind of around the fallout of the Richard the Third, uh, and the Leicester Mayor, uh, Sir Peter Salisbury, kind yeah. of mentioned this, and I do believe it's on the BBC website. If you give me your 
uh, contact details, your email details. I'll um, I'll see if I can find the actual story out. I know I put it out on Facebook a few oh, yeah a few months ago now. I think it was. Um, yeah. So, but there are rumblings. I'll say that yes. at least there yeah. are rumblings of, of, of um, a quest to to get, get Daisy buried again. It, well, a, a rumbling is good enough for the time being. <laughs> it's a start, isn't it? It's, it's a, a start. start. Yes. Just, um, I mean, obviously, you, you, you're unaware of this, and with your contacts and with with you know your your site. Um, yes. you can, uh, rumbling can be can, can develop into a full blown earthquake if we yes, heavy yeah. going. No, definitely, it's a start. So there's been no official comment by the London Hospital concerning it, this ever, has there? Um, I <laughs> can't, I cannot recall anything. Then again, Jonathan, I must admit I've not really been look, I've, I've not looked for it. Uh-huh. Uh, to, to be honest with you, um, there's been if I remember the article was purely down uh, purely about the, the wishes of, of uh, shall we say the people of Leicester and some of his descendants in in and around Leicester. Um, for this to happen, there was no comment. Um, again, I'm going on memory from the Royal London Hospital about it. Mm-hmm. You see, with respect to the present family, I don't really think, it, my opinion is, I don't think it should be their call. Let's look at the facts. As Philip said, he was a deeply religious person. His favourite book, so it seems, was the Bible. Um, what is actually stopping people from looking at this information and saying, well, this is what Joseph would have wanted himself. Yeah. So, you know, there you go. Yeah, I mean, the original... Yeah, his, his remains hold no educational um, aspect at all. Exactly. The only reason they would... Sorry, the only reason they would have had for keeping his body is is for medical research, and they've done what they can with it. It doesn't have any further use to them. Absolutely. It would have been done by now. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can't think of any benefit at all, really. Yeah. Um, Unless it's... it's Well, well, there is a benefit. There is a benefit, and I believe it's a monetary one. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm talking purely... um, medical here, um, yes. unless there's something that a cure for a protea syndrome or, or whatever and uh, yeah. one is it as well, um, unless there's something like that, um, but you know And, and, and it kind of, just the existence of of the bones at the London Hospital leads to these, you know, tabloid you know, Michael Jackson trying to buy the elephant man <laughs> skeleton and things like that, you know, it just continues the disrespect of of Merrick, and and also just yeah. just perpetuates the freak myth, uh, yeah. you know, and and, and, uh, and and the Royal London Hospital uh, culpable for maintaining that that this by by continuing to, to to not allow his remains to be buried, they are culpable. They are equally to blame, and are therefore no different from what would the claim about uh, Norman and Tor, though that's not entirely yeah. true. Um, but morally, um, I question it. Incidentally, I've never seen anything to substantiate that Michael Jackson was actually trying to buy the skeleton. I, th- I think that is more a rumour than anything right. else. Oh, yeah. I've never I, seen... I, I mean, have any of you seen anything? 
to no, some no, no, I've I've seen press cuttings of it, but no, nothing to substantiate it. So yeah. it was it was in the, the gutter press. Yeah, right. But but, it, but, but, it, but I think think John's point is that it it, it perpetuates that though, doesn't yeah. it? Correct. Yeah, it, it was it was I know tying. It's kind of yeah, especially I mean like it was reported so widely. You know, it was it was like one freak buying another freak was basically yeah, the gist yeah, of the yeah. newspaper articles, mm. uh, and um, and to where a lot of people I th- would b- think that to this day probably is, I think that Michael Jackson actually owned the skeleton of the elephant. Yeah, yeah. You know the way <laughs> the way these uh, stories get twisted and everything. So it might not have been it might not have had a, a shred of truth to it. Would I put it? Would I put it past Michael Jackson to inquire? Absolutely not. No, <laughs> me not. <laughs> but uh, so I don't know whether he really attempted to purchase it. I wouldn't have been, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. But I don't know that for a fact. Yeah. Um, now in in Leicester, so so all, all of us agree that there should should be some kind of burial. Uh, other than that, what has Leicester done? To commemorate Merritt being being one of its most famous native sons, any much of anything at all, Neil? So, so uh, could I could I just say before before you go on? Sure. What what I mean, if Joseph Merrick is buried, surely it has to be in an unmarked grave, because you have the implications of of the skeleton being stolen, and I don't think that wouldn't mm. happen today because it probably would. So, I mean. Yeah. Um, Sorry for sounding pessimistic, but I think we need to look at the security aspect of it. No, I think that, that's something that I haven't considered, Jeanette, to be honest with you, and that's a very good point, uh, to, to be fair. Um, yeah, yeah, but but I think we're, we're all in agreement that something needs to be done. Anything yeah. is better than being on display in a glass case. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. So, so, yeah, I completely understand what you're saying and agree with that, yeah. But um, going going back to your question, John, I mean, Jeanette will be in a, a better position to comment on this because you, you um, organised the plaque, Jeanette, is that correct? Yes, that's right, yeah. Well, there were, there have been two. I mean, you've got the, the, the cemetery stone uh, that we've actually done. Yeah. But in 2000, uh, was it 2004? Crikey, it's a long time ago now. Um, we uh, actually, once again, with the same stonemason, Glenn Andrews, who donates his everything <laughs> to, um, to, to doing a, a plaque, it was actually put on the corner of the old Hex Holdings building, Acker, the, the Gaiety Theatre building, on the corner of Wolf Street South and Gladstone Street. And that was unveiled by a certain, um, oh gosh, he was the mayor of Leicester, Patel something or other. He, I don't know. You, do you know the one I mean? Yes, yes, and sadly he's recently passed away. Hasn't yes, he? that's right. He, yeah. he was the Asian um, uh, mayor of yeah. Leicester. Yeah. And it was unveiled. We had a little curtain and everything in front of the black. And it was very nice, I think, about um, probably uh, about 20, 25 people turned up. It was a very quiet, solemn affair. So that was the first one that we did. It was an oval granite plaque on the wall there. And then it disappeared. 
Um, we didn't know what happened to it. We thought somebody had stolen it. But for about 10 years, we had no idea what happened to our plaque. It transpired that the the future developers of that site had taken it down into safekeeping without finding who it belonged to. And so um, the friends of Joseph Kerry Merrick then had, uh, a, a, you know, a long um, a job on their hands to track it down. So that was the first plaque, which is now, incidentally, in the sunken garden at the Moat Community College in Leicester, which was previously, which actually shares the grounds of the workhouse. That's right, it's the, yeah. Same, same uh, area of land. It's now in that area there. Why did we decide to let the college have it? Well, basically, um, Joseph would have agreed with the uh, the learning association and that it's, it's a place for learning. He would have agreed with that. And, um, and the school really does um, uh, teach um, respect for people with disabilities. So it's yeah. a great place. And then also, there was the... Sorry? Sorry, I was just going to interrupt, so I do apologise for that. I was just going to say, the, the, the nice thing about Moat uh, Community College is the actual uh, external wall, the fencing around it, is the original wall of the I workhouse. Know. I so know. So you've I got something that Merrick would identify with. If you came back today, he would recognise the fencing around you the know, outside. I, you know, I was there last week. And the original fence uh, is still there, as you say, mm -hmm. And part and the of game. the original, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah. We do have to temper that with something. Uh, when Neil and I and our friend Steve Stanley went to look at the place in February or March, we did a very uh, long, deep analysis with the surviving sepia-tinted photograph of the workhouse. <laughs> and I'm afraid those gates, yeah, those gates are not the actual gates that's in that photograph. That's right. They're, the they're, they're similar. Yeah, yeah, they are similar. Yeah, the the the, the they are very similar design. I think the the one of them's got bars on and the other one hasn't. But they've got slight circular insets. I'm no um, ironsmith, so I don't know what I'm talking about. But they've both got circular insets, etc. Ones on the photo have a a distinct line across them, which um, the modern ones haven't got. The ones there haven't mm. got. So so it's absolutely correct in that. But the gate post and the walling and the mounts. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah. that's. That's really strange because I looked at the left gate and that has got that swirly pattern. But looking at the sepia photo provided by, is it Peter Winterbotham who runs the, the workhouse oh. website? Um, he, in that picture that he, he showed, it actually does show a swirly pattern on the left yeah. gate. Indeed. And that's the one we looked at. They, they do both have a swirly pattern, but it's not actually the same. What a shame. I confirm that there is a discrepancy in that, Philip. Philip's mm. absolutely correct. Oh, um, yeah. Again, <laughs> but, but they do look very similar. But again, they, they are mounted and they're mm. on the same mounts. Um, mm. But the wall, the wall is exactly the same. Yeah. The wall is around mm. the outside. So yes. It is something that it would identify with because obviously it's, it's a place that he, <laughs> although horrific part of his life, yeah. he, he did spend there. Uh, a part of his life. I'm wondering um, if those gates so, were yeah. actually. I'm wondering if those gates were actually changed during its time of being the Hillcrest Hospital. Well, it's likely. Yeah, it's but because, it, because 
was going to say, because they're a similar design, there's there's no reason why the gates couldn't have been dismounted from another part of the site and put there. Yeah. yeah. Maybe yeah, they were taken could, down for the war effort. Could well be. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. They, they, they do look very similar, so mm. I, I'd agree with that. The, the thing about the, 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 um, the workhouse is it, it would have been quite a dominant feature in Wall Street. You'd look across and you'd dominate that particular part of Leicester. So yeah. it's quite a, a prominent place in, in the city at the time. But um, I do believe, again, uh, um, um, with regards to memorials to merit, there is a, a, another campaign in the local press about having something done um, with regards to either a statue or something like that, which I oh, don't know. Frightening. I don't know how it's to statue. take that. Um, Surely not a yeah, statue. But, well, I don't think a, a statue of, of, of um, a, a replica of Merrick himself, but something okay. that's kind of associated with Merrick, yes, whether it be right. a, a statue stroke memorial stone or what have, what have you. Um, the local, again, the, the current uh, mayor of Leicester, Pete Salisbury, um, again, going back a couple of years ago, and it's gone fairly quiet, um, asked people their views on it. Now, whether they've scrapped that idea, I don't know, whether they've right. nobody bothered in their views, I don't know. Again, I'll try and dig it out of you, Jeanette, and, and um, pass thank it you. on to you. In, in regards to, thank you, uh, in regards to the, uh, the, the the workhouse, I remember reading an article uh, describing it as an extremely windy place inside where there was lots of drafts around corridors um, and that there'd be like uh, one brush to an entire room of inmates, uh, one comb for an entire room of inmates, one piece of soap shared by so many. Life was really rough. Now, considering Joseph's condition, although he became very, very much, very much worsened in later life, even then his back would have been deformed to a degree. Now, I read from the article, and I believe it was in the newspaper, um, I've got it somewhere, that his bed had, didn't have um, a mattress, uh, a, a per se. It was actually wooden slats. And that yeah. all of the inmates there had wooden slats. Oh, that's absolutely dreadful. Most uncomfortable. But, yeah, I mean, I mean, with regards to drafts, it's location on top of the hill there. It wouldn't yeah. surprise me that it was baked by gusts of wind. Again, yeah. it's also right next to the uh, railway station. Yes, and yes. And the grime of the trains coming backwards and forwards. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so it wasn't in, a, in an ideal location for those um, who were suffering with their health. Yes. In Leicester, nothing much survives at all as far as um, sites associated with Merrick. Well, you the, know, clock, the clock tower. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah the clock tower that. was there. You've got obviously churches around there. Um, you've got uh, the, the moat school or the footprint of the fence, which was the workhouse that was discussed. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, Supreme Cigar Factory was pulled down. And so that's not that it was replaced. Uh, well, in modern times, it was a magistrate's court. Um, but you have got you've got Lee Street or the end of Lee Street, which is now called Lower Lee Street, which is essentially a back alleyway. Um, but the the um, the beauty of it is, with regards to that, it's the tarmac is coming away, and underneath the tarmac, you can actually see. Let me get the word correct, because Philip will have the right go. Right, <laughs> <laughs> there, there is the cobbles, no sets, no. sets uh, are underneath. 
So it's sets, yeah? Yeah, it's sets. Yeah. They're not, they're not uh, cobblestones. Well, no, no, no. no uh, I'll, I'll let Philip explain. <laughs> it's one of my absolute bugbears in life. Cobblestones are the rounded ones you get in places like Dorset. Sets oh. are the flat stones that look like bricks that are laying down on the ground. Oh. I stand corrected. Wow. Wow. Okay. You're really pedantic about that one. Everyone winds me up about it. I don't know why, though, but whenever I used to go down there and see these peep holes in the ground of these inverted commas sets, <laughs> um, it, it, it kind of was a nostalgic, romantic kind of feel to it, even though life in those days was anything but romantic. Um but now, when I was there last week, they, they got all the scaffolding up. They're building um, a, a block of flats exactly on the car park where number five stood. Indeed. Well, I'll let Philip, I'll let Philip tell, tell you the story of that. Right. Well, when I went on this day-long visit with uh, Neil and Steve uh, earlier this year, we made the whole day a trip round all the sites related to Joseph's life and upbringing in Leicester. So it's places like Wanlip Street as well and, and Russell Square, all these places, you know, people generally wouldn't think of going to. Neil yeah. had a lot of period maps with him so he could pinpoint the exact spots. All those buildings are gone. We did film and photograph all of them, but none of them are left. Uh, although the board school where Joseph went, is actually obviously it's gone but there's a site uh, directly over it so we could actually pinpoint exactly where that was to the same pretty much the same shape however when we got to lee street near the end of the day as as the uh, the big finale uh, when we got there uh, we just saw the whole place was covered up with uh, with harris fencing and um, sheeting and what have you and we looked through it and uh, they were actually digging the excavation holes for the yeah. foundations for the new place. And oh, there, there, there we saw the foundations of 50 Lee Street and uh, the drain pipe running behind it. And we were given access to the site by the, the men who were there just to take photographs and film before they shut for the evening. And uh, outside my door right now, I have a large piece of drain pipe from uh, Joseph's birth house. Oh, wow. Well, I'll bring it along oh. and you can see it tomorrow. Oh, I'd love to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, when, um, when you guys announced that, that was just one of the that was one of my favorite moments ever. I have to say, uh, yeah. that was amazing. <laughs> so, according to what you said, then, Philip, I think May uh, Strachan, my colleague, told me, didn't you say you could see the pipework lead into his back kitchen? Yes, yes, yeah. that, that's that's the drain I'm referring to. Fabulous. And the foundation and the foundation bricks and uh, the whole lot. And the, the guy went, "Do you want a bit?" And we looked at each other. And went, yeah, do we? And uh, he wow. escalated some bits for us, which was... Which well, was I don't suppose you've got a spare bit left over, have you? But I'll have a look. <laughs> <laughs> we did, we did from that, so yeah. Yeah. You know what I might do? Actually, I might put it on eBay and see if I can raise some money for Proteus Syndrome. <laughs> well, that'd be worth that's a go. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's a brilliant idea. Absolutely fantastic. I do believe, I mean, Philip will probably correct me on this. Um, they're, they're actually building student flats there. Um, now, Jeanette, you mentioned about the Gaiety Theatre and the plaque yeah. that was on there, and Philip mentioned that the Gaiety has since been pulled down. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do believe at the time they were actually building, again, flats there, and they were going to call it Merrick House. Yeah, no, 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 the, before that, yeah. no, what they were going to call it before that. They were going to call it Elephant House. No. Yes. 
They were going to call Elephant House and Leicester was outraged. Yeah, rightfully so. That's ridiculous. They were going what to call ignorance. it House and then they changed it to Merrick House. Well, the site's not been built on now, so I can only assume that they've run no. out of funding for it. Incidentally, have you seen the building next door, that beautiful black and white Dickensian-looking building next the old, door? Um, uh, le- is it Leases, the pawnbrokers? Yeah, well, it's no longer black and white. It's whitewashed. It's plastered over all white facade and made into flats. Has, ha- has, has Leicester got no pride of its heritage? Absolutely, yeah. I completely agree with you. Yeah, I think we saw that, Philip, when we, we did our little walk around and I noticed yeah. that it had been, been re- uh, repainted. Redone. There's so so many of the streets do not exist anymore. It's not a case of the buildings have gone. Most of the streets land, you know, vast swathes of road now. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the problem with Leicester, and it's always had this, is it's, it's tried to be seen as, as a progressive modern city. So mm. it's no 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 blitz. There's very little blitz occurred during the war in Leicester. Um, attacks on Leicester by the Luftwaffe. There, there's nothing like that. So a lot of the damage done to Leicester is done by those in charge, the councillors and so on and so forth, the politicians, call them what you wish, um, and, and, and constantly modernise. And again, I'll go back to the fact that Leicester, whilst it's not a, a major city in, in the UK, it, did, it does have a little bit of money. I mean, you go to York and it's very picturesque in York. I don't know if anybody's visited York, but it's a yeah. really beautiful city. Mm. But the, yeah. the reason why, why it's kept a lot of its medieval-type structures is the fact that it... it, it didn't really have an industry. It wasn't that that influx with money. So they basically had to keep their old buildings and maintain them best they could. Yeah. Whereas Leicester had the money, they could knock down the old buildings, the slum areas, and rebuild new high-rise blocks, so on and so forth. Yeah. But of course, as years passed, and these these old buildings in York um, kind of became more significant to the historians and therefore the tourists. Yeah. Um, that industry, the tourist industry, took off in York. Yeah, um, you know, and, and it, 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 if Leicester kind of maintained that philosophy, shall we say, or, or didn't yeah. have the money, Leicester could have been as picturesque as, as York and, and other yeah. cities of that ilk. Um, but but that is one of the the biggest gripes of any. If you ask anybody in Leicester with regards to their own city. It's the modernisation of the 50s. Yes, of course. I mean, it was heavily bombed as well, though, wasn't it? It wasn't, when compared to Coventry and so on and so forth, it did have, you know, but it, it was bombed. I can't, can't state that mm. it wasn't. But compared to Coventry and Birmingham and, and the other big industrial cities in the area, mm. Nottingham, it didn't have a lot, really. Um, but, yeah, they, they did, it did have the odd attack, shall we say. Um, but the, the majority of damage done um, it was done at the hands of it, those that were put in charge of, of the city of its development. Mm. Yes. Yes. Of course, the only buildings you have now, really, are the cathedral and the guild hall. Yeah, guild hall, Lowesby Lane. And that, that, that was how Leicester uh, um, would have been. Yeah, I mean, if Merrick was to come back um, to modern Leicester, and if you put him anywhere, the one street or area he'd recognise would be Lowesby Lane, guild hall. Yes. Area that would be something that would go, Yes, this is I recognize this and be able yeah. to make his way around. Very mm. little has changed there. Um, around his side of it, um, Wolf Street and then the estate. I mean, my family, um, were 
hail from Britannia Street and Warboy Street, which is only a five or six second walk away from Russell Square, which is where the Merricks used to yeah. live on stage. That is completely unrecognisable. It's probably one little yeah. part of Russell Square that remains. And the, the church, I think St Mark's Church across Belgrave Gate, but the rest of it is completely modern flats and modern estate. Yeah. Um, he wants the clue. Um, so you get the odd little bits of buildings around. Yeah. But as Philip knows, when we did the walk in February, very little remains um, mm. that, that he would recognise today. Now, Lee Street, Wolf Street and Russell Square, all those areas, they're in the parish of St Mary's, aren't they? Um, could be, yes. Um, are we right. to, uh, uh, no, St Margaret. Is it St Margaret's? Or, or, now you're asking a really good question that I probably can't... Well, I definitely can't answer. It's either... <laughs> I, do you know what? Now you've said St Margaret's, I'm thinking I'm wrong. Sorry, I think it's, it's, it's the post of St Margaret's. I mean, Joseph yeah. um, Rock, when, he, when he, his father came to Leicester, that was the area they settled down in, because obviously right. his father's side of the family came from Spitterfields in London. And yes. they basically followed the um, hosiery and boot industry to Leicester, which is obviously, as I mentioned earlier, is, is quite prominent in the city yeah. um, well, well, for, for many years. Rocky um, so, and so, sorry, Rocky and Mary Jane actually got married in Thermiston. Yes, that's right, which I, I can't understand why. Is that because Mary Jane, uh, her, her family was settled in Thermiston area? Yeah. Yeah, exactly why. They were, they were buried in that little church there. Beautiful yeah, yeah, little yeah. Nice yeah, village. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah. Um, some of the descendants are still from that area, or the, or the Merrick family are still located in that area, Thermiston oh. area. Okay. But I'm, I'm, I'm mistaken, distant. So, but again, we, we, go, we mentioned that um, his mother's family, the Pottertons, actually hailed from Thermiston or, or Wood Base when they came down from Yorkshire. Yeah. So I don't know how the merits kind of got out there. Um, but um, we know that his father's buried in Belgrave uh, Cemetery. That, that's correct. With his second wife, is that, that correct? Mm. I think it was. But we um, know that so... there is some Spitalfields Association, don't we? Could it be that... Well, could it be... You know, you had the... Um, oh, I forget the term now. The Dutch weavers that were in the uh, Spitalfields. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Yeah. But, well, maybe yeah, work think. dried up there for the Merricks, and, yeah. and maybe they went to Leicester because it was thriving um, in uh, weaving hosiery, and it, it was a, a good town to go to. Maybe that's the association. I think you're, you're, you're quite correct on that. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent spot. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. The, the setting up around St Margaret's, you've got the old um, hosiery factories across the road, which yeah. um, across St Margaret's Way. Um, which has now been, I didn't realise they were there. For years I used to go past there on the bus to work and we had this 1960s monstrosity in front of it and they pulled that down and it revealed the most beautiful Victorian hosiery oh. factory behind it, which is now oh. flat, so they kept it. Um, and um, I didn't realise they were there, but around that area, and because it's based near the River Saw and the mills and the hosiery mills around there, um, yes. was dominated by those types of factories. Yes, Oh, by the way, Jonathan, are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. <laughs> See, I, 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 this is what I meant by uh, when I mentioned at the beginning that I, I, I just kind of sit back and let you guys talk. I can go for hours just sitting here. <laughs> no one knows I'm here. Um, I will ask a question, though. Now, the shop that he was displayed at in Whitechapel is still standing, and isn't there a plaque in front of it? No. No? No. no. 
Yeah, they renumbered Whitechapel Road. I thought I had seen photographs of the inside of a of a shop where maybe they were old photographs, but it's a sorry shop now. Sorry, it's a sorry shop now. But is the uh, the original building or no? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, that's what I meant. That... But I've, I've, I mean, Phil, I've not I've not actually seen any plaque at all. You've not seen no. one, though. No, I don't oh, think there's okay. ever been one. What I can say is it's been undergoing refurbishment recently and the back section of the shop where Joseph used to exhibit himself, which was never open to the public, it was the back room of the later Sari shop, has now been refurbished. shop goes right back to, to the back of the structure and oh. you can now walk around where the back room itself was. Huh. Well, I've, I actually was led, because the, the guy that is in there, obviously I go there quite a lot, and he kind of knows me a bit now, and um, he allowed me to walk to the back of his shop, and he took me out into the yard at the back of the shop, oh. just in a car, and he said, that is where Joseph Merritt was exhibited. Oh, and so, okay. And he, and he also said, here's a Ripper reference, he said, and this is one of the locations where the Ripper hid... From the police. <laughs> right. well, that, well, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Okay. So he was exhibited out the back of the yes. shop outside? Well, it's outside when I went, yes. And I, I don't think it had a roof on previously. But he said, this is the area out the back here where Joseph was exhibited. Sure, hmm. but then if he also went and said this is where the Ripper hit, I don't know how much credence we should right. set by it. Right, Treves' recollection yeah. um, describes... <laughs> yeah, you've got a point. <laughs> yeah, Treves' recollection describes a scenario similar to what we see in the Lynch movie where a curtain is pulled back from essentially where Joseph, you know, where Joseph lived, slept or whatever, and, and it, you get the impression that he was just viewed from where he, he lived, in the shop, mm. kind of a thing. Mm. But I'm not sure what's true there. Well, the, the, yeah. well, yeah, but, I mean, the building is, is as was. So, you know, okay, well, what the exact location of where he's exhibited, the precise mm-hmm. location may not be known. Right. Uh, but the building is there, and, you know, as Philip says, it's been extended out, so it's been cleared out, so you can go to the back now. And as Jeanette points out, it did have a yard as well. So you've got the... The, the building in situ, as it were. I mean, I don't think there's been any plaque there. I've certainly not uh, oh, heard the story of, of any such thing. Because okay. you know what? It's uh, really strange because for the first couple of years going to that shop, they used to take me downstairs, a t- oh. kind of rickety staircase, and said, This is where Joseph was displayed. And then the, the last few years, they've been taking me right at the back of the shop in the, in, the, in the yard and saying, This is where Joseph was displayed. So, and it was the same guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's spinning a yarn there. <laughs> P.T. Barnum's still alive and well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's no doubt he was displayed at those premises, but whereabouts is, well. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's not. It's not as if they're massive premises, are they? Too? No, they're not. They're, no, a, a narrow, narrow premises. They're not. Not at all. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and and throw this one since we've mentioned the Ripper a couple of times. I had promised Philip earlier that I probably wasn't going to bring up the fact that Joseph Merrick has been named as a suspect in the Jack the Ripper murders. <laughs> But why not, right, Philip? <laughs> All right, so I'll just cover it briefly. This really lies with Elliot O'Donnell's book, Rooms of Mystery, published in 1931. <coughs> 
Oh no, it's, it's the ghost of O'Donnell making me not say the answer. <laughs> but basically, O'Donnell said that very close to the Whitechapel Hospital, there was an old woman who lived uh, in an attic room with her son, who was terribly deformed, had a trunk like an elephant, and uh, he was thought to be the Ripper. He would go out at night and come back covered in blood, and there'd be another victim the next day. And then apparently she disappeared with her son, and nobody ever heard of him again. Clearly, the, clearly O'Donnell is alluding to Merrick. Now, bear in mind, yeah. this is nine years after Trees' publication came out, and Merrick himself was not the core celebrity that he is today. And I think he just used Trees' account and thought, oh, this sounds interesting. Because, uh, obviously, because, you know, Merrick was a curiosity, he can put him in with this whole realm of his kind of warped view of the paranormal and link him in with all this, this ridiculousness. Yeah. yeah. It's because Joseph was quite... Not, not meaning to be, but because of his condition, he was quite secretive during his time at the hospital. He wouldn't just stay in his room in Bedstead Square. He would walk the grounds of the hospital at night time. Yes. And so, but he would be cloaked. He'd be veiled because he didn't want people to see him. Maybe that shape in the, in the evening moonlight was uh, suspicious to, to people. I don't know where she got her information from so i can't really say <laughs> is that the only account has anyone come up with a any i i've not i don't know of any books that have been written that actually elaborate on this theory at all do you or is that the one and only as far as I know, it's the only one. It doesn't mean there aren't others, but I think the reason that people know about it is because it's about as ridiculous a suspect as you could possibly have. Yeah. I think yeah. that's why his name jumps out. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, yeah, no, I'll, I'll end it there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I won't say any more on that point. <laughs> now, the, a television show that I have not seen, which Neil watches, Ripper Street, also oh, has yeah. a re- reoccurring character, uh, as America's a reoccurring character in that, is he not? Mm. In the, in the first show. In the, I think it's series three. He, was it series three? What series are we up to now? Three or two? Could be two. Um, he appears in the first couple of episodes in, in series two. Um, he comes across as, uh, as the hero, as it were. Um, I won't spoil it for you, I'll let you watch them. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he, he does crop, I mean, he crops up in From Hell as well, doesn't he? In the, uh, he does. He's Johnny got a cameo role. So, mm. so, yeah, whenever there's a Victorian-themed TV programme, straight film, um, set in the east end of London around that period, Again, as Jeanette just said, there seems to be a cameo appearance by Merrick. Right. They do. Um, they do make him viewer friendly. They make his speech quite, you know, intelligible, and yeah. uh, and his deformities really just seem to lie in some kind of uh, hunched figure who just has exostosis on the skull, rather than actually the extent of how bad he really was. Could, yeah. could I just yeah. say something yeah. very briefly about the speech? Um, we know from well from Tom Norman's accounts, he he tells us that Joseph used to converse uh, quite openly with other people in the show, etc. They had uh, educated kind of conversations, uh, and so one can only assume at that point his speech wasn't that bad. Now, whether his speech did become as bad as Treaters tells us or the medical profession now tells us, I, I, I don't really know, but uh, probably it got worse. Wasn't the growth inside his mouth growing again at the time he died? Yes, it was, yeah. 
and also yeah. in in this uh, this discovery documentary of Meet the Elephant Man, they did actually make casts of you know of the inside of his mouth, and they actually made face plates and did the restriction on an accent, have got him to speak. That's um, right. And, and indeed, it was it was pretty unintelligible, and the guy was drooling from his mouth, that, and he couldn't yeah. close his mouth throughout it. Yeah. But you could you yeah. could understand it, but you had to listen really hard. I think yeah. had I not known that poem, I wouldn't have understood what he was saying. Indeed, you know. Um, on, on, in regards to that poem, may I recite it? Go ahead. Absolutely, it's, it's fitting. Tis true, my form is something odd. But blaming me is blaming God. Could I create myself anew? I would not fail in pleasing you. If I could reach from pole to pole or grasp the ocean with a span, I would be measured by the soul. The mind's the standard of the man. Beautiful words, not his. <laughs> Isaac Watts. Yes. Well, part of it was Isaac Watts, but then Joseph adapted it. Yeah. <laughs> and he used that to end his letters of thanks to people. I want to get to the, the stage productions uh, briefly before, um, and, and, until I get to Philip's uh, production. Um, so, and I guess this is just going to be all directed towards Philip. The stage productions of the Elephant Man, from what I understand, the '79 one and the one that be, was off Broadway and then uh, hit on Broadway, didn't use any prosthetics or anything like that. No, from what I understand. And now, isn't there a, not referring to your play, but a, a, isn't it returning to Broadway or something like that, or in, uh, in, or in or in in the West End or something? Well, Aren't they redoing the '79 yeah. show? It, oh. it had now, now Prominence actually wrote it in 77. It wasn't performed until 79. What happens is that it's performed uh, in Broadway with Bradley Cooper in the lead role. That's come over to England and he's been performing as Mer- I don't know if he's still going on. It probably is. But he's been doing that for some time. Issues with the Prominence play. Uh, Prominence based it largely on the only script, uh, the text that was available at the time. Well, if you ex- exclude Trees, which is Ashley Montague's book from 1970, which deals deeply with uh, psychology and assumptions and not a great deal with his life. It's quite heavy going. And again, in this new adaptation of it, they're not going to use any prosthetic devices or... Oh, no. No, indeed. They, have, they haven't done, no. Okay, and that's the choice that I you... actually, I actually saw the play, and I thought it was just brilliant. The new one? Yeah, with Bradley Cooper. I saw it a couple of weeks back. Huh. Okay. You, you didn't have a problem with the fact that it takes so many liberties with the truth? Actually, well, I've seen Pomerantz before, you see, so I'm quite used to it taking liberties with the truth. Right. Um, but the, the performance itself was really, really good. And despite, you know, despite um, he not looking anything at all like Joseph, there being no prosthetics of anything, it was, um, a, you know, you could buy into it. Um, but, you know, it was... <laughs> It was different, obviously, to the facts, and uh, but for a, for a little bit of entertainment, it was it was good, and it did have some touching moments. Now, was the Lynch movie based off of the the play? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he claims it wasn't, but nevertheless, Pomerant successfully sued uh, Mel Brooks, who actually, little known fact, Mel Brooks was actually the producer of the, the 1980 film. Even though David Lynch was the director, people never associate Mel Brooks with doing a story about Joseph Kerry Merrick, but, but he did. Well, and so Pomerant, <laughs> Pomerant successfully Sorry, sued Mel I Brooks. Didn't know, I didn't know there was a relationship right. between the Pomerant's play and the film. 
Um, yeah, well, well, Pomerantz, I mean, it wasn't supposed to be, but there were so many things taken from the Pomerantz play put into the film, the Pomerantz actually sued uh, Brooks for it. Okay, okay. <laughs> you learn something every day. <laughs> and one, you say. Yeah, apparently so, yes. It, but the movie still remains one of your favourite films, doesn't it, Philip? It is my favourite film. I've not seen it for a couple of years. Every time I watch it, I'm, in, I'm sobbing all the way through it, frankly, the whole, the whole thing. But having now done more research into Joseph's life and seeing how far away from reality the movie actually is, uh, I haven't seen it since doing all the research because I might fall out of love with the movie and I don't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and... and uh, Go ahead. When I watch when I watch the movie, I just skip the parts that aren't factual. I'm afraid. That's yeah. That's fair enough. But you can be on the fast forward button quite a lot. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> what what the movie actually does is that very often it does take genuine events, but it twists them and changes the chronology and exaggerates them. Yeah. I mean, for example. Merrick did go to the Theatre Royal in Drury Lane and he, he saw the pantomime of Puss in Boots, at least we assume he did. But Madge Kendall being on stage and introducing him to the audience, as oh. it happens in the movie, that didn't happen. It was quite my the opposite. Very, was... My very dear friend, Mr Joseph Merrick. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who, I, who I've never actually met. It didn't actually happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so that's, that's why the, they're taking liberties. The cardboard church that was put together, which was incidentally not built from scratch, it was a, a kit, a German kit church right. based on Mainz Cathedral in Germany. And uh, he put the kit together, a huge feat for somebody using only one hand and, and in dreadful pain. Um, but that was actually built apparently for her, um, but she never collected it. She sent her husband to collect it. We can only draw assumptions from that that she actually was scared of meeting him. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, you know. Oh, Lord, you, yeah, you, no, you can't judge her for that. And she was a genuine uh, benefactor. Yes. Yes. We, we haven't touched on Joseph's holidays at all. Well, go ahead. Um, as the story goes, apparently um, Trees noticed that Joseph was suffering a lot from depression. Now, this, uh, we mentioned earlier about him um, tapping the pillow or banging the pillow or something. I'm, I'm not sure if it was in time to the music that he heard or out of depression. But he did say that he suffered from depression. And so he sort of did the rounds trying to find somebody who wouldn't mind putting him up for a little holiday um, in the countryside. And um, I, I forget the facts around it right now, but... Um, it was um, the Forsley Hall Manor, um, uh, Lady um, Louisa Knightley of the Forsley Hall Manor um, in um, the Northampton countryside. She came forward and offered Joseph a holiday on her estate, massive estate. Joseph, while he was there, he was free to wander in fields without the disguise, without fear that somebody's going to just scream or run away from him and he had uh, several holidays there and he loved them now one thing that should be said uh, also uh, is that he was offered i forget the name so forgive me for this one but uh, someone had actually offered him holidays before then but she stipulated a condition that he should he couldn't go out in the daytime and that was just obviously thought to be unsuitable so so yeah. they, they they, they said no thanks, and then Lady Louise Knightley came along. One of the first people that Joseph was offered to, I think it was a woodcutter's cottage, on the Forsley uh, estate, um, Joseph turned up her door, she threw her apron over her head and went running. 
That was so, Goldby, the, the, the bailiffs. There you go. Ah, there you go. The, the, ah. So uh, and the second one, yeah. he was befriended by a little boy and a dog, <laughs> which he really fell in love with. And he stayed at uh, another cottage. And maybe that was the woodcutter cottage. And this was all occurring just shortly before his death, isn't that right? Not long before. Right. Yeah, it, it first happened, I think it was 1887, I think the first time he had a holiday that, there. Oh. I think, but it continued on until 1889. Yeah, yeah. I want to uh, get to Philip's play. We were discussing the 79 play and then the movie. Philip, what inspired you to attempt your own stage performance of Merrick's story? So many people have dealt with it before. Obviously, there's more than just the Pomerantz play. I've seen two other versions of Merrick's story done on stage over the last few years. Uh, but they all deal with uh, perceived accounts. They tend to be derivative from Pomerantz, derivative from Lynch, or just taking information from Treves. And having uh, Jeanette's and May's book that deals with so many more facts and not dealing with all the, all the the stories about him, it's important to me to bust myths. I, I, I love being able to tell people something they think they know and then they find out at the end they didn't know about it at all. So the whole point behind it was trying to show the truth about Joseph's story, that he wasn't quite as pathetic as he was made out to be and Trees was not the great uh, benevolent character that everybody thinks he is. He's, he's not the Anthony Hopkins character. He did exploit Merrick for his own ends. He was benevolent, but he, he, had, he had one eye on how it would further his own career. And so it was important to me to actually tell the truth about it. And, and so you got in touch with May and Jeanette in the process of writing it? Or how did, how did the... Because from what I understand, there was some sort of collaboration. Or was, well, was the book just an inspiration? No, when I, when I wrote Hats Off to Laurel and Hardy a couple of years ago, um, I didn't, you know, you don't, you can't be a researcher and say you know all the answers. You've got to go to people who you've got to acknowledge know a great deal more than you do. Right. And if you're going to write a play that you say is going to stick to the facts, you don't want to read everything just from books. You want to get in touch with researchers who themselves know a great deal about it. So I contacted uh, Jeanette and May through the Friends of Joseph Carey Merrick, uh, Joseph Carey Merrick website and said, I'm intending to write a play about Joseph Merrick. Um, I want to make sure that we're not doing anything you're going to object to i want to get the facts right uh would you be interested in assisting me and actually reading the script when it's done and uh you know we give you due credit and everything and but i want to make sure that i don't do him a disservice um may replied to that email and when i was writing the play i had questions and she would answer back with them i sent her the script when it was done and she said what she liked you know she said there was a couple of things that were errors so those errors have been corrected and and now as um i mean jeanette's not seen i don't think she's even read the script yet so she's seen it for the first time at the time of recording this tomorrow night may's familiar with the script now and you know she says she she approves of it all uh the issue we've got with doing this play is that all we have to go on is the written accounts because i've decided not to fictionalize anything apart from conversations but all the events in it are true we've only got written records and to an extent Treves account to go by now what I've had to do with Treves account is when I've read something I think this sounds like Treves doing his own version of events I've had to cut it out but there are some of the things that you know I've, I've mentioned in in passing today Jeanette thinks these things aren't true I think they could have been true so this is purely subjective so one or two of Treves things are in there but most of it is based on what we know 
Consequently, because of that, we can't get an exact overview of Merrick's state of mind. It has to be assumptive. And indeed, one of the reviewers uh, loved the show, loved the performances, but said, I wish they'd made some of the stuff up to get more of an idea of what Merrick was like. And that's obviously its complete antithesis of what I'm trying to do. If, okay. if, it's, if it's less interesting to people because I'm only telling the truth, well, that's their tough luck. I'm telling the truth about it. I don't want people to go away with the wrong conception of who Joseph, Joseph Merrick was. Wonderful, wonderful. How did Tony... Bravo! Well, thank you. Let's say you see that tomorrow. <laughs> how did, how did uh, Tony Carpenter prepare for the role of Joseph Merrick? I could do so many, <laughs> so many jokes about Tony for this, but I'm, I'm not going to. Um, Tony's always wanted to play Merrick. I mean, we, we know, I love the film anyway. In conversation one day, he just said, oh, I'd love to play that part. And I thought, all right, then, what are you going to? So, I, I mean... Uh, um, He's just seen the documentary pieces about predominantly from the Discovery program, showing about how he spoke, about how, how he walked. And uh, he's had to tone those down slightly to make it easier to do. You couldn't actually completely adopt Merrick's posture for all that time and, and not be in agony at the end of it. He's still in a fair bit of pain after an hour. But you've got to close up the right fist so the fingers are overlapping like his right hand did. He's, he wears a gum shield. Uh, it's, not, you know, it's not one taken exactly to scale, but he does it to restrict his speech, and it really works. It pulls down the right side of his mouth. It makes it talking difficult but still understandable. And uh, he bends himself over and he keeps the thing with with his he like draws his left leg up so he makes himself uh, lame as Merrick was with the shortening of the left leg he uses a walking stick throughout it and every time he gets off stage he tries to relax because it'd be very painful for him but Tony wanted to play the part Merrick's character to an extent does suit what Tony's like as a person as well it must be somewhat a challenge to him being on the stage to project his voice and at the same time, you know, try to impersonate what, what we think Merrick must have sounded like in real life. That is a very good question, but the easy answer to that is that the shows that we do are intimate. They they are connecting with the audience, and we never play large spaces if we can avoid it. Okay. Um, so so we're always playing in, in studio theatres, uh, so he doesn't have to worry about his voice reaching out. And he speaks fairly slowly. There's there's not you know a lot of interference from extraneous music and things like that, so people can hear him fine. Uh, you have a lot of tour dates coming up, right? Uh, we've done quite a few already, but yeah, we, we do have some coming up because we tour all, all the shows all the time. We, uh-huh. we tend to have a lot of our weekends taken up. Uh, but, but yes, we, we've got, we're playing the one in Guildford uh, tomorrow, which is such a bind for me because the theatre is about literally a minute's walk from my flat. So that's very <laughs> difficult to deal with. Um, but we're, we're playing it in, in Bedford, uh, Bedford Fringe, and then we've got Birmingham Fringe coming up, and uh, we, we've got some other bookings coming up later in the year. The thing you have is that it's not so suitable to to tour theatres is just a one-off uh, production by itself because it's an hour long. Theatres want, you know, a, f- a full evening as a rule. So this is one that's more suitable to touring fringe venues. I assume it's going to be kind of like Hats Off to Laurel and Hardy where, you know, you, you'll tour it constantly. I mean, as long as people seem interested, pretty much, correct? Exactly. And, yeah, that's and, it. We're not going to drop it until people, uh, people just decide they don't want to see it anymore. Right. That's because I'm always kind of surprised to see, oh, Hats Off is playing next weekend you know um knowing that you've been doing that for quite a long time Uh, it's been two years now yeah so that's a good thing because i don't know of any other besides the broadway play you know i don't i don't know of any other performances of the elephant man going on anywhere else so as long as you can keep it going then then one of these days you're going to be the only one 
Well, there, there is a company called Fourth Monkey, and uh, some people involved with Ripper Research, like Jackie Murphy and Alan Hunt, uh, they saw them perform it down in Dorchester uh, earlier this year. Now, I saw them perform at Edinburgh Fringe two years ago, so that's clearly been on the road for a while. It's also a very good production. Jeanette, anything upcoming with the uh, Friends of Joseph Carey Merrick or, or on the website or anything else that you well, need us to know about? Well, well, let me tell you, apart from the uh, Joseph Carey Merrick dot uh, com or the josephmerrick.com website uh, we do have another website which is dedicated to the friends right. and it's simply uh, www.fojcm.com so there it talks about the friends who they are their faces their work etc uh, and um, it has our vision statement mission statement um, so that's that mm-hmm. um, but also of course we are writing another edition of our book um, because recently we've uncovered a lot more information. We are also planning on working closely um, with uh, Peter Salisbury, when I can pin him down, to get this central memorial put in place. Peter, who's the mayor of Leicester, is very much in favour in doing something to promote Joseph Merrick um, as a courageous uh, resident. Um, so he, he is interested in there being a central memorial or central uh, um, something or other uh, for, the, for the residents of Leicester to, to see and learn from. Ah, this could be uh, an expansion of what I mentioned earlier, Jeanette, you know, mm. about there, there being a statue or whatever. This could be something that's been expanded on because so, that story is, a puppy, is around about the 2012 Olympics. So that's how long ago it was. It was a few years ago when it was first muted. Um, so it could be what, what you're dis- going to discuss with uh, Sir Peter could be an expansion. Yeah. I just mentioned. Well, well, I'm hoping he'll listen to me because uh, at the end of the day, no one else uh, in history has made sure that her name is remembered, and that's Mary Jane Merrick. Um, You know, she wasn't on the tombstone. His mother has never been The most important person in Joseph's life was his mother, Um, and finally she's going to be, you know, pinpointed, or she is pinpointed, um, and uh, Joseph's name is there too. So never before has there been a place to lay flowers for Joseph until now, Uh, and for that reason alone I'm hoping that Peter will listen to me about having a central memorial. So do I, so do I. How do you become a friend of Joseph Carey Merrick? How do, how do you get into, involved in that group? Well, usually it's by invitation. Okay. Um, we have um, a Facebook page which um, which uh, Philip knows about. Right. Which is very I, I joined that. I, I follow that as well. Okay. Well, so that's becoming more and more active. You sometimes get silly comments you sometimes and we and we have to kind of vet it really really closely we don't like to throw people out but if they get a bit silly or disrespectful then that reflects badly on us Mm -hmm. and we don't want that association so we've got that and if we've got people that sincerely show an interest um and time after time incidentally philip we have chatted about this and it is my great honour to invite you to become a friend of Joseph Carey Merrick. Oh, wow. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, the, wow. friends, the friends are so happy with what you are doing. And so we would very much be happy if you would come on board and join us. 
I'm, I'm really honoured. I'm, I was not expecting that at all. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you very much for agreeing. That's lovely. <laughs> so, um, so you weren't expecting that, were you? <laughs> uh, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> In maybe one of reserve just speech. <laughs> maybe, well, okay, reserve, reserve the invite till you've seen the show. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Not at all. It kind of sounds like going forward, and you know, looking towards the future, nothing but positive things could, are developing here as far as uh, Merrick's legacy. Do you all agree? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially we, we had a we had a, a film which told the story, 80% of it maybe was, was is true, the other 20% really I, I take with a pinch of salt. Now we're entering the period now where all the facts are coming out, and I couldn't be more pleased. Yeah, I was just about to say in the last five to ten years, things have mm. moved on in a, a great pace. And again, it's, 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 no, you know, it's great thanks to Jeanette and May and the friends of Joseph Fair. Uh, um, that things are progressing as, as rapidly, and he's, he is a he's a historical, uh, interesting character. Um, but not only that, uh, if you look at it from the humane aspect as well, he's an absolutely um, inspiration. Yes, yeah. he is. Uh, at this point, I think we're going to wrap up the show, and I again want to thank all three of my guests for being on today. Jeanette Sitton, again, is the author, uh, a co-author with May Strohshane of Measured by the Soul, Buy It Now on Amazon. It's a, and Kindle version. Look for that updated uh, edition of that book. Um, you can find, like she had said, the friends of Joseph Carey Merrick have a web, uh, Facebook page that you can follow to get updates on that organization. And Philip has a Facebook page, too. The Lucky Dog Theater Productions is on Facebook. Everybody's on Facebook anymore. Um, Neil, Neil Bell's upcoming book with Adam Wood, uh, Howard Vincent's Police Code 1889, is also a presence on Facebook. So feel free. I'm on Facebook. Uh, Rippercast has its own Facebook page. So if you have any comments or questions about this episode, you, there's multiple different places you'll be able to find us at. And again, I want to thank everyone for being on the show today. And like I said at the beginning, thank uh, you. it was uh, something that I really wanted to do for years, I would say. Philip and I have been talking about the Elephant Man for at least a good few years. So I really appreciate that all, all three of you were able to finally make it happen today. So. Well, well, thank you for bringing his story to the fore again, Jonathan. Uh, thank you so much, everyone. All right, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.